You know, Don, I think it's one of the Ten Commandments that you should not covet thy neighbor or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. But last night with about three minutes left in the hockey game, I couldn't help but close my eyes and try to picture what it would be like to be in the first Niagara Center with a 6-1 to one lead <laughs> in a hockey game where you have a 3-2 to two lead in the Stanley Cup Finals and you know your team's minutes away from winning the Stanley Cup. And I can't say that I haven't felt the feeling. You've seen me feel the feeling of, yeah, yeah. of, the, of a championship. And I've, I've gone – but here's the thing. When the Saints won the Super Bowl, I got to feel that and share it with my friends and family. The people I love the most were there, except for Anthony, who's in Sioux Falls. But for the most part, the people I love most were there that day. And I had a moment. Too, you know, with Tracy Porter picking it off, that that created a moment. It wasn't like I was sitting around the whole fourth quarter waiting with a huge lead, just waiting to win it. Right. But that was for me mostly. Right. When I think of the Sabers and winning a cup, I think about where I came from and my city and my neighbors and what it would mean to all of us. Yeah, it'd be insane. And that's where I guess I had a little bit of jealousy last night for sure, the Kings. Sure, for sure. But welcome to the Sportscasters. It's season two, episode number 23, June 12, 2012, the birthday of Miss Caster. Uh, happy, birthday, oh, happy birthday, Tammy. Uh, but welcome to the show. Last week, episode 22, we had a great show. Albert Chen, Jeff Perlman, and Matt Wrights were on the show. Today, we have an even better show. Uh, no disrespect to those guys, but SL Price is going to join us to talk about cover story that he did for SI on Josh Hamilton. I did the interview a little bit earlier today, and all the Josh Hamilton stuff is great. And if that was all the interview was, I'd be excited for you guys to hear it. But afterwards, we kind of – Mr. Price isn't on Twitter. And we kind of get <laughs> into a really interesting discussion about why. And kind of we ended up in this thing where I ended up taking the side of why I should join, and he was telling me why I shouldn't, and it turned out great. Also, Lee Jenkins is going to continue a tradition that we started last year of joining us from his hotel room in the host city of the NBA Finals before Game 1. Last year, Lee talked to us from Miami before the Heat and the Mavericks series. Today, he's going to talk to us from Oklahoma City before the Thunder and the Heat start Game 1 of the Finals tonight. And our third interview today is with Mike Woods, who came recommended from our buddy Tim Graham. He's a member of the Boxing Writers Association of America board and the editor of SweetScience.com. And he's going to talk to us about what was a really bizarre fight on Saturday yeah, and some of the knee-jerk reactions that people had to it on Twitter and in Las Vegas. And we're going to find out, was it corrupt? Was it not corrupt? Was it something else? We're going to get into all of that with Mike. And it, it, I did that earlier, and it's really fun, too. Uh, also today on the show, we're going to do our NBA and NHL playoff updates bot that we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. We're going to update the book club. We're going to do pick four, which I was miserable at last week, and uh, we have a little extra wrinkle to that to preview the U.S. Open. You know, sometimes it seems like things are slow at this time of the year, but this week has felt especially busy. There was a lot of places we could have went. Yeah, it was easy to prepare. Trying to get everything in this week in terms of the Stanley Cup ending and the NBA Finals, and we had the fight, and we have the European Championships going on in soccer, and the U.S. Open this week, and French Open just ended in tennis. So there's all kinds of things to get to today. So let's get started with three things. 
Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. You heard off the top, Mike Emmerich, who we talked off the air, is one of just one of the best. Uh, he's making that call great. against the team that's his team, his the team he calls home games for in the in the Devils, and you would never know it. But anyway, yes, the Kings do win their first Stanley Cup in their history, and Ke- Jonathan Quick gets the Conn Smythe. Not surprisingly, we talked a couple weeks ago. I believe his odds were like. 12 to 11, something ridiculous like that you would never actually gamble on. But if you did... Well-deserved Conn Smythe, I thought. Sure. Uh, Puck Daddy kind of blogged a little bit that maybe one person that could have stole it from him in the end there might have been Marty Brodeur, who was impressive, but it doesn't help to have a 6-1 game take you out. Uh, But yeah, we already talked earlier. This is just a quick spot. Hard to open the show without mentioning the Stanley Cup victors, but we will talk a little bit further about this later on yeah we'll talk more about it later in the show and my first thing is is kind of in the same vein the nba finals start tonight as we record on tuesday the heat and the thunder and i guess since we've been on last week what happened in basketball is the heat lost game five to the celtics to go down three to two and then were really impressive in game six and seven to win also impressive was the celtics heart i thought was really good they battled. I think they just lost their legs in the fourth quarter of Game 7, which was at the end of an absolute unbelievable Saturday in sports. Uh, I mean, we had a little bit of everything on Saturday with the soccer and the horse racing, which Don's going to talk about in the beginning. Earlier in the day, we had uh, the Women's French Open Final, which I don't know if we'll get to, but Maria Sharapova won that. And then we had um, a hockey game. We had Game 7 of the NBA Finals, and... Then we had the fight. So Saturday is a crazy day in sports. Yeah, so for a slow sports time, like you said, it's pretty busy. Yeah, so NBA Finals start tonight. We're going to talk more about that with Lee Jenkins later. And we're going to do, in between Lee Jenkins and Mike Woods, we're going to talk in more detail about the NBA and the NHL playoffs. I kind of tongue-in-cheek labeled my uh, three things notes this week, the irrelevant sports edition. And I love hockey, but my next sport is boxing, which is kind of dying a slow death. And, again, no disrespect to the... The, I'm forgetting the guy. Michael Woods. Michael Woods. But, I mean, he would probably admit it, too. But Tim Bradley beats, and I put that in quotes, Manny Pacquiao. Some stats for you here. Manny Pacquiao landed 253 punches, or 34% of his punches thrown. Timothy Bradley landed 159 punches, or 19%. 100 less punches. Uh, and won the fight. I'm sure you guys will do a better job in the interview later on uh, defending this fight or, or picking it apart, I should say. But I found some interesting quotes from the promoter, Bob Arum. He told reporters that he scored the fight 10-2 to for Manny, and he said that he talked to Bradley's manager, who even told him that he had the fight 8-4 to in favor of Pacquiao. Uh, that was probably off the books or whatever. I'm sure his manager would never admit that. But Arum's quoted as saying, This is nuts. People don't know what they're watching anymore. I'm going to make a lot of money in the rematch, but who's going to take this sport seriously? 
he's the manager or he's the promoter for both boxers. You know, one thing I've and never never seen before is a fighter, and these guys have huge egos, huge egos. Right. Never seen a championship fighter stand in the ring after a match and tell the guy interviewing him that he needs to rewatch the tape to see if he won. And that's what Timothy Bradley said in the ring after the yeah. fight to Max. He said, I'll watch it tomorrow. And he said, I got to rewatch this to see if I've won. I've never heard that before. <laughs> you know, thanks to the power of the internet, I would never pay 60 bucks for this. So I think it's insane. But I did watch the fight. I don't know if I should admit that, but if the boxing police are going to come after me, I'm sorry. Uh, but I watched it and I was bored because I just felt like Pacquiao was just doing what he had to do to win. Seemed like he dominated. I never felt like Bradley was a threat. Bradley clearly was. Pacquiao clearly had much more power than Bradley. He never felt like Bradley could ever knock Pacquiao out. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And, and like you said, we'll get into it more. Uh, but if there's a rematch, I, I wouldn't want to be Bradley because I think he's going to get the mean side of Pacquiao this time. Yeah, Aram has said too. He's like, look, I'm going to make a ton of money on this rematch. Uh, he promotes both boxers. They've already thrown out a date, like November 4th or something. Crazy. HBO will love it because 24-7, it's going to be really interesting, you know, the second time around. MMA is beating them up over this. Yeah, I bet they are. This is one of uh, a great opportunity for MMA to to take charge here. All right, my second thing, uh, maybe you've noticed the Jerry Sandusky trial has started in Pennsylvania. And... um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I wanted to mention, Season 2, Episode 15, so just about 10 shows ago, we had two guys on, Bob Mauschi and or Bill Mauschi and Bob Dvorak. And those guys wrote a really great book called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. And also this summer, I believe the scheduled release date is August 31st, our buddy Joe Poznanski is going to put out his book, which is simply called Paterno. And it's going to be really interesting to see how those two books are different. And also it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks where public opinion goes based on what we learn over the course of this Sandusky trial. You know, we've already seen a really interesting juror selection process, which is kind of went quicker than I thought. Quicker than I thought. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, you know, we're going to see we're going to get we're going to get um, more information uh, about it, we're gonna we're gonna see what the evidence is, and we're gonna be able to make some information today. Mike McQueary took the stand um, in Belafonte, PA. Uh, he's a former Penn State assistant coach and a central figure in Paterno's downfall. He testified Tuesday that he heard a skin-on-skin smacking around in a campus locker room one night in 2001, and saw something that was quote unquote more than my brain could handle. Wow. Jerry Sandusky was standing naked. In the showers behind a boy, slowly moving his hips, McQuarrie told the jury. McQuarrie, one of the star witnesses in the child sexual abuse case against Sandusky, said he had no doubt he was witnessing anal sex. He testified that he slammed his locker shut loudly as if to say, Someone's here, break it up. Then he said he went upstairs to his office to try to make sense of what he had seen. Uh, the article, which is at ESPN, goes on to say Sandusky 68 is on trial on charges he molested 10 boys over a 15-year period. Authorities say he abused them in hotels, at his home, and inside the football team quarters. Uh, former assistant coach and founder of an acclaimed youth charity has denied the allegations. 
Um, McQuarrie was composed during his testimony, and when asked if he knew Sandusky, he looked right at him with a sharp glance that Sandusky returned. Uh, McQuarrie's account differed a little than the one he gave from in December at a preliminary hearing, which defense attorneys are going to love. They love picking apart any discrepancy in stories. Um, Brutal. But, uh, yeah, just a really uh, scary thing. Sandusky's attorney pressed McQuarrie during cross-examination about disparities in his estimate of the boy's age. McQuarrie replied, if you want to argue about 9, 10, 11, 12, the fact is he had sex with a minor, a boy. That's going to be really tough for the defense to come back from. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in public opinion with Penn State and everything. Uh, so it's a sad story, really. Sure is, but uh, like you said, or one that's far from over. Uh, my last story this week, I'll have another. We discussed last week if that was going to bring me to the TV, and it never even had a shot because nope. I'll have another was pulled out of the race early and retired yeah. uh, before the race, which... Look, if it meant not having to see a horse have a tent dragged over it and shot on a track, then good. Right. But it didn't help the sport, I'm sure. Union Rags ended up winning the Belmont. I, you yeah, know, I, I kind of that, that's it. I don't know. I kind of happened to be. I kind of happened to see this play out on Friday. Uh, I woke up at home on Friday and uh, I was watching the soccer a little bit, which I'll talk about in a minute. And I happened to turn on the the Dan Patrick show, and Dan was saying that he was going to have the trainer of I'll Have Another on. And I had mentioned how I was really interested last week on the show. I mentioned I was really excited to see this horse race for the Triple Crown. Then what happened is his trainer comes on the Dan Patrick show just seconds after learning about the injury and I guess announces to the world that I'll Have Another wasn't going to race. It was a real bummer. I still did watch... The race, which wasn't a very good one in terms of speed. I guess it was much slower than previous Preaknesses, which leads everyone to think that I'll have another one at a great shot. Yeah. A great look yeah. at the Triple Crown, which is a bummer. But, you know, it's at what cost, right? And it's it's not worth the horse. It's no. kind of like it kind of reminded me of the show Lucky, which I loved on HBO, which was about horse racing, which they had to cancel because horses were being injured at the filming of the show. And right, I, right. I had to say to myself, at what cost do I want to see this show? And the cost is not a horse dying once a week. <laughs> right. You know, if that's what it takes to shoot that show, you probably shouldn't have that show. And if, you know... It, the- it's, a tough, it's a tough sport. I mean, if, if you follow my Twitter, you know I'm not a fan. Uh, partially because the main athletes in the sport are... Argu- it's arguable whether or not even... That they know they're involved, really. You know right. what I mean? Their motivation. and But, I mean, if they did the right thing pulling them off, then then good for them. They they could have ran and hoped for a payday and fame and whatever else. But glad to see that the horse is, is going to be all right and whatever he goes on to do now. Stud, I guess, right? Yeah. All right. My third thing today is another kind of off-the-radar sport, at least – on the sportscasters, certainly not in the world. It's right, the right. most popular sport in the world. But uh, the UEFA Euro 2012 has started, and ESPN is doing a fantastic job covering it. Uh, basically, where they're at, they're in the round-robin group stage right now. Today was the first day of the second games. 
Uh, each group has played, each team now has played at least one game in the tournament with four playing two, four teams playing two, and there's been some interesting results. Uh, one is there is a group of death, as they love to call these things, when one group <laughs> yeah. is uh, brutal, more than another. And um, this year, the group of death is Group B, which has Germany, the Netherlands, and Portugal. Uh, Richard Deitch told me on Twitter he had picked the Netherlands to win it. They lost their first game in the tournament to Denmark, which was the first shock. Oh. Uh, which puts them in a bad spot. And then Germany beat Portugal. So right now, Denmark and, and Germany control Group B. Another interesting group is Group C, which has Italy and Spain, who tied their first match. Croatia kind of outmuscled Ireland and has taken uh, the lead in that bracket. It's hosted by the Ukraine and Poland. I guess they're splitting it. Uh, Poland had their second draw of the tournament today. Uh, they're in a tough spot. They drew with Russia, and the Ukraine won their first and only game over Sweden yesterday. So, a great tournament. Really interesting. Italy and Spain played to a 1-1 draw. A really exciting game. A lot of people are talking about Italy maybe being a dark horse in the tournament. I don't know who the favorite is right now. Germany's looked really good. Croatia's looked really good. Russia has four points, the most of anyone, but they've played two games. So it'll be <laughs> excited to see the Euro. And uh, our soccer guy, quote-unquote, is Grant Wall at SI. He's at the tournament. When it ends, I think we should get him on and uh, get a first-hand report of, of what he's seen at the Euro 2012. There's apps out there, coverage every day on ESPN.com, so definitely check it out. Yeah, and even if you're not a fan of soccer, just – you can be a fan of the the spectacle of it all and just the the passion that the fans and the Euro play. has it. Yeah, the Euro has a real close feel to the World Cup. I mean, Argentina, Brazil, they're not there. You know, United States, they're not there. Right, it's Europe, but it's being played in stadiums in front of eighty, ninety thousand people, which are split half and half between the two countries and the flags and the singing and all of it is there. Everything that makes soccer is great. And what's not there is that buzzing horn that ruined the, <laughs> the Vuvuzela. Yeah. Ruined the world cup for me last time. That is not there. So that's, that's great. I mean, there's no, doesn't sound like a pack of swarming bees. Soccer also has one of the coolest traditions in sports where they, uh, exchange the jerseys after. And yeah. For the handshake. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think that's it for three things, right? Oh yeah. One thing I wanted to mention Fourth thing, I guess. Don did it on our Football Nation show, so I'll do it a little bit on extra. this show today. Congratulations to Rick Jenneret and Roy McGregor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rick Jenneret and Roy McGregor have both been honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, they're not inductees of the Hall. They're honorees of the Hall. Okay. In the journalism world, they're going to be considered Hall of Famers. Rick Jenneret, of course, anyone who's from Buffalo knows, has been the play-by-play voice of the Sabres for a long time. And uh, congratulations to Rick, who's now in a bunch of Hall of Fames. I mean, he's in the Sabres Hall of Fame, the Western New York Sports Hall of Fame, but now he's in the big one, you know, the yeah. NHL Hall of Fame, honored for what he's done. It's too bad we were just there last year. Roy McGregor is a guy who has been on this show, author of Wayne Gretzky's Ghost, and uh, was on Book Club Book of the Month for maybe April, I think it was. might have been February. I reached out to Roy. Uh, I congratulated him on being honored by the Hall. And uh, I thanked him for coming on the show. And he was great. Uh, he wrote back and, and thanked me. He mentioned that he reached out to Jenneret, someone that he only knows sort of, you know, 
through the right. through the world kind of a thing. And uh, I just want to congratulate those two guys, especially someone. It was so cool to hear, you know, when I heard that Roy McGregor was being honored. It's like, wow, the guy was on our podcast. And, I mean, he's not <laughs> yeah. the first guy to be on the show that's been honored by Hall of Fames. I mean, I'm sure Frank DeFord has been honored by Hall of Fame or two. John Smoltz is headed that way. We've had those guys on recently, but wanted to mention that. So we've got a lot to do today. Let's take a break, and we're going to start the show off with S.L. Price and an interview about Josh Hamilton and why Mr. Price isn't on Twitter. Our next guest is from Stamford, Connecticut, and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina. As a student at North Carolina, he covered the 1983 Tar Heels team that featured Michael Jordan. After college, he spent time working the Sacramento Bee as an NBA beat writer and for the Miami Herald as a columnist and feature writer. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has received multiple honors for his journalism, including two Associated Press Sports Editors Awards, two National Headliner Awards, and awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Women's Sports Foundation. He has authored three books, including his 2009 book, Heart of the Game, Life, Death, and Mercy in Minor League America. He just might be the most accomplished guest who has ever appeared on the show. And for the second time, a Warren Sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Scott S.L. Price. How are you doing today, Mr. Price? Great. Thank you for having me here. Really excited to have you on. I, I think, I, I don't know if I told you this last time, but you know, Tuesday we record the show. We spend pretty much all day working on it. And when my partner goes home and we start to wind down, I love being able, and this is because of the iPad allows me to do this, but I love being able to just wind down, watch some TV. And then at midnight, I can download the new Sports Illustrated. And that is, it makes it feel like it's two days early because it doesn't come in my mailbox till Thursday. So before I go to bed on Tuesday, I can take a look at what's in there, maybe read an article before bed. And I expected last week to see Johan Santana on the cover. I thought it just made sense. I thought, you know, the Mets, first no-hitter, Johan Santana, he's going to be on the cover. I had heard it was a baseball guy. And instead, it was Josh Hamilton, and I was so pumped. I was so excited. I saw you wrote it, and I immediately sent you an email. So we got to talk. I want to talk about Josh Hamilton. So excited. So I read the article, and uh, I guess let's start before the article, and I guess I'm just curious... Well, let what? me ask you a question first. Okay, sure. Yeah. Because this is important to the future of the magazine industry. Okay. Do you prefer reading it on the iPad, or do you prefer reading it in magazine form? And what? from what I'm, uh, what everybody tells me, the magazine looks spectacular on the iPad, and some, some people think it looks better on the iPad than it does with the, with the backlighting and everything else. Yeah, the, the magazine is incredible on the iPad. Um, the, their pictures are incredible, and there's more of them. You know, right. I, yeah, the, the pictures that are in the beginning of the magazine... The leading off, there's usually about three or four of them. There's usually close to ten or so on the iPad, so that's great. And also, like I said, I get it earlier. I, right. It feels like two days, so I love that. But when it comes on Thursday, I usually like to read whatever the lo- like the big bonus piece at the end. I still usually read in the um, in the magazine for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But I love to read the front part uh, all the way through the inside columns on the iPad, and then if there's something I have to read, like your piece on Hamilton, I'll read on the iPad as well. But then How when the old magazine, are you? Uh, I'm 31. Okay, 31. So do you think most of your contemporaries approach sports media and approach media the way you do? 
Yes, I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, if they have the technology, they utilize it to the as best they can. And in Sports Illustrated, I think, has done a great job. For example, ESPN the magazine is on the iPad, but it doesn't doesn't come to life on the iPad the way SL do, or SI does. I don't know why. It just <laughs> it's just not the same. So, I think that Sports Illustrated is kind of a leader in that in that aspect, in my opinion. Wow, it's good to hear. Okay, keep reading. <laughs> I will. So, sorry to hijack that. I just I just I, I, I it's it's important for us to know. Yeah, no problem at all. Anything anything I can help out with. All right. So, what? Why Hamilton? Um, what made you decide you were gonna uh, do it? Well, first of all, he's clearly tailed off. You know, he's obviously slowed down. But his start was so ridiculous and over the top. I mean, in some ways, it was the most explosive start I think I wrote since Jimmy Fox in 1932 or something. I mean, you know, in Major League Baseball. Um, You know, hitting over 400, bombing home runs, and then doing things in spectacular over-the-top ways. I mean, he was hitting four four home runs in a game. He smashes into the center field wall and leaves basically with a body outline as he tears up the center field wall in Seattle. Uh, You know, his 13th, uh, bottom of 13th walk-off home run while sick. I mean, you know, Josh Hamilton has always been sort of a larger-than-life figure. He obviously just had the relapse. And his contract is looming, so right. so it seemed like there was a, it, it, it was it was almost uh, it was it was a story almost begging to be done because it because it wasn't just the same Josh Hamilton story. Although obviously with the relapse, you you go through some of the the history, but um, you have two factors in, in in play that that weren't around the last time. Three factors essentially in play that weren't there weren't the last time we did Josh Hamilton, which is um, you know he had this recent relapse. He's got a contract coming up, and the relapse and his fragility and just the hidden sort of question about um, how old his body truly is because of all the drug use, um, you know, makes him just this absolute question mark of a, of a free agent. Uh, his free agency is fascinating. Who, who's going to take a gamble on him? Um, the Rangers love him. He loves the Rangers. But uh, then there was, you know, the, obviously the additional idea um, that we got into in the story, which is that he wants to use the, the money to, to give away a lot of it. Um, and then, of course, it's just his incredible play. So you had a combination of both off-field and on-field um, and, and, and a future that is questionable that, that made him irresistible. You know, we talked to Albert Chen last week who had a really nice piece on Matt Kemp in the, in the magazine, and he kind of spoke about his frustration a little bit about how he got assigned to write about this athlete who was dominating the National League. And then as he's doing the story, he goes on the DL. Then right. they hold it. He comes back. He goes on the DL again. The story runs. And I, I, I kind of sensed a little bit of that same frustration from you when, you when you were beginning about talking about how he tailed off. And he hasn't tailed off to completely. I mean, he still leads the league in home runs. And right. To me, no, I still no, need to And, see and understand what I'm saying. I mean, he, he wasn't when – when we – Literally, they called, SI called me and said, what do you think? The weekend, you know, three days after he hit the four home runs. So he was, you know, simply on fire in a way that, you know, made him impossible to ignore. Uh, By the time I had reported it and everything else, he still was having an incredible year. And it wasn't certainly the injury thing that happened to Albert, which, which really does play havoc. Like, there never was a hesitation with the story. He's important. He's interesting. Um... And so I didn't run into that so much. Um, 
uh, as, as much as Albert did. No, there, there wasn't that kind of frustration. It just you could see it sort of happening as you're as you're writing the story, and and uh, and again, it's happening only in in increments that you know any other ball player would love to have. I mean, he's still hitting you know north of way north of 300, and and uh, I think he's second in the league in hitting right now. And as you say, he's leading in a ton of categories. He's having a great year. What is it like to be around him? I mean, what what kind of a sense do you get from him? What kind of person do you feel like Josh Hamilton is at this point in his life? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about Josh Hamilton, and I think the thing that makes him so attractive to not just fans but writers, is that he's one of these inordinately talented guys who essentially, you know, as Jim Courier once said about Pete Sampras, you know, God put a finger on his right arm. You know, basically just sort of went, eh, you know. I mean, clearly he has been blessed with incredible talents that in our society would have would have created a, a an exoskeleton in the society around him of of, of privilege and uh, almost impossible for that person not to feel arrogant and feel he's better than people. I mean, if you remember at his signing with the Rays, um, you know, as a teenager, the four million dollars that he got, right? Well, not only that, but it, I mean, to tell you the truth, the money is almost secondary to the statement, which was like, I figure I'm going to play 15 years, uh, you know, a, a few years in the minors, then 15 years in the majors, and then five years after that, I'll be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know, he was he was a guy who has just has been blessed, and now he is, at the same time, he is talks about himself as as the frailest creature, as the most sort of. Um, I don't know, um, someone who's got nothing to be arrogant about. In fact, he's quite the contrary. He's got a lot to be ashamed about. Very and so that combination of incredible talent and incredible sort of, I don't want to say humility, because he, he does have an ego, just like anybody. I mean, it, it's just that um, it, it's that combination that makes him even still irresistible. He walks around and he, he's got, look, he's, he's still got the tattoo on his arm that says ham bone. You know, I mean, you know, he's still... You know, when talking about the shift, you know, that teams were putting on him earlier in the year, it's like, well, it's not really working out for him, is it? I mean, he's still got that edge that makes him, you know, uh, a super jock, that kind of thing. But at the same time, he's he's been very public about his weaknesses and about his addictions. And, you know, clearly, you know, he almost lost it all. And he knows it and he carries himself that way. I mean, he's, he's a very good presence in the clubhouse, I think. Um, obviously, he's got special not rules, but he's got a guy who's there to mind him. So, you know, he's a special circumstance. But you know, look, I think most players and most people know that with special talent, sometimes you, you've got to do special things to accommodate. And so, um, uh, but I don't think he lords it over any of his teammates. And he's and he's, I think he's in an interesting place right now. You know, the the special person that you mentioned, I think they call him his life coach. And I just wonder... Accountability partner. Oh, accountability partner. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you do a story about Josh like this and interact with him in this way, what kind of interactions then do you have with his accountability partner? I didn't have any with Shane Kelly. I mean, I never spoke to him. I was sort of told, well, no, he doesn't talk to media. I mean, maybe, you know, certainly in passing he does. It's not like he, he, you're, you're scared to talk to him. I, I certainly saw beat writers chatting with him and everything else, but in terms of doing interviews about Josh. Um, and uh, I didn't certainly press the matter uh, because, you know, Josh made himself incredibly available to me, and as did his wife Katie. So so uh, I felt like, uh, you know, somebody like an accountability partner, a coach is like one of those concentric circles that are, 
uh, I felt with Josh and Katie, I had gotten closer to the nub of the matter. Um, and so it wasn't, I didn't feel like a massive loss that his accountability partner who had only been with him this, this season, um, you know, wouldn't, wasn't going to be available to speak. When we talk about Josh Hamilton and the issue of his uh, dependency comes up and his sobriety and, and this fight that he's going to have for the rest of his life, it's impossible for us to predict how that's going to go. But when you talk to Josh about it, kind of where is he in relationship to fighting the disease that he has? You know, that's a really good question because, you know, he feels, he, first of all, he'll tell you I'm an addict and, you know, something could always happen. But they feel, the, the two of them, Katie and Josh, that his response to this second relapse in terms of sort of digging in to his faith and, and scripture and, and really trying to break out of the shell he sort of goes in when he does relapse, um, they feel like he's in a good place and that if he continues this, of course, he you know, that he can go without relapsing ever. Now, does he admit that you know that could all stop sure and anybody who's around josh or knows his story including katie would be a fool to think well that's it it's over he solved this problem and and well they'll readily admit it that's why he needs an accountability partner that's why he needs uh an, a, an infrastructure around him of people he can talk to when when things get dark so um i think that he's feeling confident about his walk right now his struggle but um, if he's feeling too confident, he also has a, um, you know, he's built up a, a support structure around him for people to try and keep an eye on him so that he doesn't get cocky about it and remains, you know, walking the straight path. I don't think there's been a baseball player who I've wanted to see hit as much as maybe since McGuire in 98. You know, Josh just, and, and there's a couple guys in Major League Baseball, it seems like, that have crept up this year that I just want to, Watch them hit. It, Harper is maybe one, and, and Kemp before he said his injury problems. And Hamilton is that way. I just want to see him do this. I want to see how far he can take this. Can he win a triple crown? You know, how many home runs can he hit? Can he challenge Bonds' record? Um, do you get the sense? Do you get that kind of buzz like when you're with with him in the stadium? What kind yeah, of sense? Yeah, yeah. Two two things about that. One is is that I and I tried to get at this. There's he's you know we're between Moneyball and steroids, um, I, I felt like sort of the idea of wonder had, had been drained for the game, for, you know, rightfully so. I mean, you know, these guys are good athletes and everything else, but the idea of baseball, we were just like, wow, you know, that wow figure. No one wants to admit, especially journalists, to wow, because, you know, you don't want to come off as sort of naive or, or, or uh, childlike, you know, especially when the fact, when you've quote-unquote been let down so many times by steroid revelations and so on and so forth. But the fact is, there's a reason that Bo Jackson's a legend. You know, I mean, people, he had that sort of, he seemed like he walked out of the woods and just started cracking home runs left, right, and center that were just titanic. And other baseball players were held, you know, sort of held him in awe. Well, you know, obviously baseball players hold Barry Bonds in awe. They respect what he was able to do, steroids or not. But with, with Josh... Other ball players, there is a sense of wonder at watching what he can do because these guys know talent better than anybody, and they see what he can do, and it's amazing. I think the most remarkable thing about Josh is, is that even non-believers, you know, people who aren't Christian, everybody has, non-believers 
on the whole, I think most of us, journalists and everybody else, have their guard up when they hear someone drop the G word. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact is, with Josh, for whatever reason, overall, now again, there, you know, uh, you're always going to have people who are going to have their guard up and think it's sanctimonious or holier than thou. But because his walk has been so torturous, he doesn't seem to be telling, I, I think people sense that he's not really trying to tell them how to live uh, morally or anything else through it. He's just simply saying, this is what works for me. And this is what's keeping me afloat. I've been through rehab eight times. Didn't work for me. The only thing that saved me was this. And so I think people are a little bit more willing to hear about religion from Josh because they feel he came by it honestly, that it wasn't from sanctimony or trying to tell them how to live their lives. It's just, this is what saved me and this is what's keeping me afloat. And as a result, I think that there are a lot of people who, who, still want to see you know want to see him succeed whereas if someone else was a, a god squatter as was once often told uh there are certain people who just didn't care that he wasn't their cup of tea but with josh i think that, that, that there's a, a slightly different reception to him there's the people are a little more forgiving a little more flexible in their feelings about about both religion and the and the the terrible things that he once did to himself the other thing is of course he he wasn't cheating the game per se with steroids, he was only destroying himself with the drugs, and I think that goes a long way. It wasn't like uh, people thought he was trying to pull one over on him. He just is an addict who who got messed up, and as a result, I, I don't know. It's interesting. I think there's a, a sense of wonder with him, and I think people overall want him to succeed. Part of it is selfish; they want to just continue to see him do the extraordinary things he can do on a baseball field. And part of it is I think they really do want him to walk straight and 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 be there for his family. The sportscasters are here with S.L. Price, uh, talking about the fragile of brilliant, the fragile brilliance of Josh Hamilton. Cover piece from the June 11th edition of Sports Illustrated. Uh, the uh, kind of the other big issue you talk about in the piece is his impending free agency, which is very fascinating. When we had the chance to talk to Tom Verducci about it a little bit a few weeks ago, but I wonder, you know, it seems like everybody says the same thing. Well. Based on his circumstances, he needs to just work out a deal with Texas. He needs you to just stay there because of the accountability stuff, and it, it just works there. There's no reason to for him to move. Uh, what's his opinion on people's uh, opinion of that? Yeah, his opinion is very clear-cut, him and Katie, but I'll, I'll tell you just from Josh's point of view, because he's obviously, to, to sports fans, more important. Um, he says, look, uh, you know, I I do love it here. I mean, he does love Texas. He loves the, the the clubhouse. He loves the guys, and of course, they're a winning team. You know, I mean, you know, it's a great stuff. This this team's incredibly talented, having the troubles last month. But overall, it's a great organization. Washington is the perfect manager for him. You know, I mean, it it, it just couldn't be better. So I I know where the fans are coming from. But Josh is like, you know what? Um, I I want to uh get as much money as possible because I want to give away a lot more money than I thought I was even. Back when, when um, you know the, the the two were speaking before his relapse, the, the Rangers cut off his cut off uh, negotiations and right. put them on hold. At, you know Josh's idea of what he wants to give away changed because of the relapse and because of his deeper sort of leap into the faith and 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 so you know his idea has changed of what free agency is than what it was six seven eight months ago, and so that's part of it. And he says, look. Other teams, and, and Washington says the same thing, too. We haven't reinvented the wheel here. You know, the, the other teams will be able to handle an accountability guy. Josh told me he will take Shane Kelly with him, his accountability partner, wherever he goes, and that's what he needs. He needs Shane. He needs his wife. He needs his uh, the New Testament. And, um, 
and 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 maybe this is what he says, you know, this is comfortable here, but we're not called to comfort sometimes. Sometimes God wants to make us uncomfortable. Of course, you know, a $200 million contract can make you plenty comfortable wherever you are. Yeah. But the fact is, I think what he's talking about is, you know, take you out of your comfort zone so that you're not with people who love you all the time. Maybe you should go to New York or Boston or L.A. where it's going to be crazier, but you'll have a bigger platform to do what you want to do. And so, I mean, my sense is... Uh, you know, if somebody comes up with an offer that's that's that gives them the chance to to uh, give more money away, he's going to go for the for the offer. If it's just Texas, he'll be happy to stay right where he is, um, and and the Rangers will be happy to have him as well. But again, it's this this, this hidden factor. I mean, Nolan Ryan told me there's no there's no comfort level. There's nothing. It's like he said, it's the same as you, Darvish. You know, we spent all this money. We just had no idea what we were going to get, really, how he was going to react majorly. With Josh, you just have no idea how he's going to age. Everybody in the Rangers organization insists to me their biggest concern is injury, not relapse. Um, you know, that maybe that's for public consumption. But the fact is, is they feel like, you know, Josh plays extremely. <laughs> Uh, aggressively in the outfield, yes, he, he, he throws his body around, and that's what we love about him. But it certainly uh, outfielders age quicker, and of course, again with the addiction, uh, the years he lost to drug use, nobody really can tell, um, you know, how compromised his immune system will be as it goes further, um, and that's something they have to sort of take into account. So it's, that's why it's so fascinating. Um, they do they do like each other, and and, and I don't I, I think um, it's going to be very interesting. You mentioned that the Rangers had had cut off negotiations after his last relapse. Are they interested in maybe revisiting them at any point, or is this going to wait until the off season? I got I got the sense. Now you know these things can change in one phone call, and that was it. But at the time I did this, which is now three weeks past. Um, I got the sense, and and Ryan came out and said it publicly as well to other people that that you know Josh is going to test the free agent market. Uh, that they're going to just wait and see, and and uh, you know that, that they're going to wait and see what kind of offers they get from teams. I don't get the sense that the Rangers are going to try and lock them up before then. I don't think they're going to try and do a preemptive deal. You know, it was a different time and a different ownership, but you could argue in a way that the Rangers burned themselves a little bit with the A Rod contract. Um, kind of lock themselves in. This is a different time. There's different TV money and things like that. But do the dollars scare the Rangers off, or are, are the Rangers willing to compete in an op- open market for Josh? Are they willing to pay $250 million for this guy, or what, what, do, you, what do you sense their ceiling is? Well, again, I, I think it has a matter. I, I mean, I think they're going to be very cold-eyed about it. But the fact is, he's the most important guy in their lineup. I mean, there's, you know, the, you know pitchers aside, which we all know how important they are, but the fact is, an everyday player... Um, you know, what he's doing is incredible, and they know it. But I think it's going to come down to years as much as money. I mean, you know, if Josh is going to want to, if someone's going to offer him, like, eight, ten-year deal, and the Rangers only want to really put themselves on the hook for six or seven or, you know, whatever, because they because of their fears about uh, his physical makeup. Uh, and, of course, there's always a question of, you know, he could relapse. You know, who knows? I mean, so, so but my sense is, is um, they want him. Um, but, uh, you know, whether or not they have the money, um, it's really going to be, you know, the market will dictate. I don't think they're going to get, I don't, I don't, I don't think they can match, you know, Yankee money or Dodger money or whatever. I don't think they can do that. Uh, but it's also, I mean, those, you know, Brian Cashman and and everybody else around the league are also going to have to run the numbers on his career and his free agency and his future. And, and so I'm not convinced that, that another team's going to 
sort of blow out the bank and or the term a number of years uh, that the Rangers won't be able to compete with him. You mentioned that he wants to give a lot of this money away, and I assume he means through his foundation that he set up? Yeah, I mean, the the sense I got was not just the, the foundation they have right now. Triple Play Ministries, right? Triple Play Ministries. They, they feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg, and they would like to really expand it because of what's happened in the last six months um, and be much broader. They didn't want to go into specifics with me, but they were really, both Josh and Katie were very excited about it. And, you know, as Josh said to me, you know, the more you get, the more you can give away. Now, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, we, we really don't know. But that's, I know they're excited about it, and I don't think they're making it up. I mean, the point is you can tell when someone's genuinely interested in something, whether they're saying something for for effect. And I, and I certainly got the sense that they were truly excited about uh, what they could do going forward uh, in terms of giving stuff away. I mean, Josh said sort of a flip comment to me, which is, you know, who can't live on one, two, three million dollars? Now, he didn't say a year, and he certainly didn't say, you know, over 10 years. So, <laughs> I, you know, I don't expect him to give away, you know, 80% of his contract or something crazy like that. But I do think, he, I mean, I do think they want to do something dramatically important to them. And, um, and I, you know, that's a, I mean, the, the weirdest thing about this is that they're saying, you know, God will tell us. Well, so, so, so the Rangers are, are dealing not just with Brian Cashman, but trying to figure out what well, you know God they're going to hear say. from their Lord, yeah. you know, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's almost impossible to deal with. So, so, and, and to predict, and that's what makes it so interesting. All right. The sportscasters honored again to have SL price on the show, finishing up with him. Just a couple other things. Uh, one, What's new in El Equipa? How are things coming? Uh, when abouts are we going to see the book? No, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, it's, Looking um, forward to it. Yeah, well, um, it's uh, it's coming. It's uh, I feel good about it. Um, I'm still reporting away, um, and I, uh, uh, you know, have had to tweak certain expectations or ideas of what the book is. Not it's nothing radical, but it's it's sort of sort of like a barge. You have to turn it, you know three degrees to the left and and it'll sell you in a little bit different direction in the long term i feel great about it um and i got a lot of work done but um when it will come out that's that's a great question (laughs) (laughs) i wish i knew last thing are we i I asked someone this last week and they laughed me off but whatever are we any closer to getting you on twitter (laughs) (laughs) uh you know there's talk about it but i i I just uh as i said to you the last time i mean i i i um you know, if someone's here's my feeling about Twitter. If someone's on a beat or on TV, I think it's an extre- extremely valuable thing. Meaning, meaning um, Peter King or Tom Verducci. These are well-known names who who uh, who are covering a specific beat. So, baseball fans who want to know what Tom has to th- do want to know what Tom or Peter has to say. And and but I'm a guy who sort of parachutes around and jump, drops into different things that are fairly obscure. I mean, I've done everything from Scrabble to you know, Pakistani cricket, uh, to Josh Hamilton. And um, I certainly don't want to tell my competitors what I'm working on. Right. So I'm not going to tweet about that. Okay. And then, uh, and, and so, uh, and I'm not sure that I bring any, you know, that, that there are thousands of people waiting to hear what I have to think. Like, I have to say, to tell you the truth, I'm, uh, the reason I'm a reporter is because I don't find myself all that interesting. I, that's why I like talking to other people about the, what they're passionate about is because I find them really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, you know, so as a result, if I'm going to read someone's tweets, it's probably going to be Josh Hamilton's as opposed to mine. And also, I, 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 writers, you know, 
I don't know. The, the history of writers on Twitter, uh, I mean, Buzz Bissinger and a lot of others, uh, I'm not quite sure I understand um, the exposure there is, is uh, not always very positive. And so... Well, maybe, maybe when the book comes out, you know, like maybe you'll yeah. maybe you'll kind of go in a, a Jack McCollum kind of direction. You know, he wasn't on Twitter, and now he's got the Dream Team book coming up. And right, but isn't that know, isn't that sort of just straight? I mean, does everybody accept that as a, a, such a mercenary play that that you know uh, you, don't you just dismiss it as ah, it's the only reason he's here? He didn't buy, and he's just he's just trying to sell a book. I you mean, know, maybe that's okay. I think that's we, great. I think we see that it's like okay, he's got this book coming out, but on the other hand, it's like. But we get more of Jack. We just get the. We but get, the thing we get is, here's the thing. Uh, the other thing on Jack is, Jack's Jack's writes about the NBA. I, I'm I'm interested to know what Jack thinks because Jack's Jack's the expert in the NBA. He's a Hall of Famer. Same with Michael Farber. You know, what I mean, right, I want to know what Michael Farber well, thinks yeah. of of the you know the Stanley Cup or the Kings, you know, all the time. You know, and and and, but I'm I'm not that guy. I'm a guy who sort of bounces around. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I do I do a lot of tennis, but. Um, and so there's that, which sort of undermines my argument. But overall, um, you know, it's uh, it, I'm going to need a little more convincing that that it's that it's going to make me a better writer and, and reporter. Two ways I think it works for you. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just tell you these two things. I'll let no, you I appreciate offer. it. Yeah. One is when I finish reading this Josh Hamilton story, you can tell me two or three other little nuggets that didn't make the story. You can kind of clear out your notebook, so to speak, mm-hmm. from story to story. You know, it's like. Everyone's read the Josh Hamilton piece, you know, maybe on Sunday you say, hey, these three other things didn't quite make the story, but are interesting, you know, Josh did this or Josh did that. Sure. And and then the last thing is, and this is my favorite thing about Twitter, is the other night when the fight, the boxing went crazy, you know, as soon as they announced the decision that Pacquiao lost, I grabbed my iPad and went on Twitter because I wanted to see what everyone else thought. It's kind of like... The wife allowing me to have 30,000 sports – well, 30,000. That's exaggeration. 400 sports writers right. over the house to watch the fight with me. And but I you wanted to, to see hear, the knee jerk, what I'm saying. Yeah, I wanted... just wanted to see what everyone thought because, one, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not near an expert on boxing. So right. I wanted to see if what I thought I seen with my right. eyes was true or false. You know, and it doesn't even matter if you're an expert on boxing or not because I just have that built-in respect for your opinion because right. you can write about things like Scrabble and Cricket and Josh Hamilton that if you have an opinion on what happened in that boxing match, I, I want to know it because I, I just want to know if, if, I, if what, I wit- what I thought I witnessed on my TV was actually right or if I was wrong because I, I thought Pacquiao absolutely dominated the fight. You know, it bored me to tears. I thought he was winning so so well. So right, you know, and and it's happened other times too. Like you know, uh, g- game six of the World Series, and Texas has got the two strikes, and everything goes crazy. Or game one sixty two last year, the baseball season, or Tim Tebow throwing the overtime touchdown against the Steelers. Like those are all moments I can think to when I wanted to pick up my iPad and just see what all these other people who have been on the show or whatever people I respect think about it. So right. I guess that's you know. That's the my. I guess it's me being selfish. I just, you know, I can't call you up and say, hey, you know, Mr. Price, what'd you what'd you think of that? But I can't. No, you could. But but the point <laughs> is, is that you know what? I appreciate it. It's by far the most eloquent sort of uh, campaign ad for Twitter I've heard yet. They so, should hire me. What's that? They should hire me. I'll get they all should. the non-Twitter people on Twitter. That's right. You're you're gonna get. You're gonna drum up more. <laughs> 
Twittyets, as I call them. Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to get you, let's see, Verducci, Jane Levy, you know, these are like my, my crusades, so. Is Verducci not on Twitter? No, he's not. He hates it. He says it's oh, just not enough characters for him. Well, I, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a time suck, and, and my feeling is, is, how does it make me a better writer? I mean, I understand why you want it. I do. Right, yeah. But, but I feel like, you know, if I want to opine about Manny Pacquiao, I should go talk to him. I, or I should talk to someone around him. You know, I, should, I, I, I don't want to just spout off. Everybody's got a belly button. Everybody's got an opinion. Right. But to me, um, in this world where everybody's got an opinion, because, I mean, one subject for your show might be interesting is sort of the devaluation of the sports column. Less and less important in this world because everybody's got an opinion. But reporting, I think, is even more important and informed opinion. I mean, I could, I could, I could certainly spout off about Josh Hamilton, but it's certainly better for me to go talk to him and Katie and and Nolan Ryan and and Ron Washington and try and give you a story that maybe tells you something both that I and you didn't know, as opposed to ah, God, Josh Hamilton, he's he's superhuman, and so you know what I mean. It's yeah. a, it's a, no, I see it's your a, side. I it, do. What's that? I, I totally see your side. I mean, I understand yeah. what you're saying. And I, and I and I and I'm not one of those people who's like, well, it's it's got to stop. You know, it, Twitter's just ter- stupid. It's terrible. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I don't think I contribute. I I don't think I would contribute that much to it. Uh, and and I'm I worry that it would uh, sort of not help me get better in any way and perhaps make me worse because I'd be sitting around trying to like be clever or interesting on Twitter and <laughs> putting my energies into that where what I'm good at is. Uh, hopefully he's going out and, and, and you know talking to people and finding something new. You know who I think is great at it is Richard Deitch, your colleague no, he's Richard the best. Deitch. Yeah, I think he's great at it. And uh, I don't know I, – I, you know, next time I have him on because he comes on with me pretty regularly, I guess yeah. i got to ask him the question that you're asking. Has Twitter made him a better writer? Yeah. You know, I guess that's really interesting because he's someone who's used it um, better than anyone. I, I right, think- but he's, he's a clearinghouse. And, and keep in mind, again, he's got a beat. Which right, is sports, sports media, media, which everybody yeah. has an opinion on. Mm-hmm. You know, now again, he does more than that. I know he he serves as sort of a clearinghouse for good writing and 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 interesting pieces and that sort of thing. But you know, I'm I'm interested to know what Deitch thinks about um, you know uh, any number of sportscasters. You know, I mean, you, you know, so if he throws out this or what ESPN is doing, everybody has an opinion on it, and he's he's got an informed opinion. I know he I know he speaks to a lot of people in the business, so that's. That's valuable. I mean, I think that's extremely valuable. And then in, along the way, he'll say, hey, I saw this interesting piece by X or Y over here or there. And um, he's an honest broker of good writing. And that's, that's, that's a rare thing also. Um, so, yes, I, 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 again, I think, that, I think there's great value to it. It's just um, I, I'm not sure where I would fit into it. That's all. Mr. Price, thank you so much. I feel spoiled. That was incredible. Uh, thank you for everything. Look forward to uh, doing it again in the future. And um Anything you can tell us to look forward to reading you guys? Anything that you're ready to say is coming? Well, I'm, I'm going to be obviously. going to Wimbledon, right? Working okay. on a piece for the magazine, going into Wimbledon, and then uh, and then after that, uh, we'll be at the Olympics. So awesome! Uh, it should be should be a wild ride this summer. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it. Okay. All right, we have to thank SL Price for being on the show today. Really appreciated that. Had fun. You know, it seemed like that interview, it seemed like at first I was interviewing him, and then it seemed like at the end we just started talking. And sometimes that's the best stuff. 
Thanks to SL Price for making a second appearance on the show. Okay, a couple things about the book club today. One, we have closed the contest. We got a bunch of uh, emails. If you want a book, I'll be contacting you sometimes this, this week to get your address so I can mail you the book. It's not the last contest we're going to do, however. This month, Book Club Book of the Month is The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever by Rob Mish. We were calling him Mish, and I read in the book that his name rhymes with Wish. So, sorry, Rob. It's actually Rob Mish. Uh, Rob's a reporter in Las Vegas, and we've had a great back and forth on email since uh, we picked Rob's book to be the Book Club Book of the Month. And exciting news came up this week. He's putting an autographed copy in the mail for Don and I, and he's also putting an autographed copy in the mail for a listener. So if you're interested in winning The Last Natural, let's wait until Rob's on the show, and then we'll give it away then, because I'm going to be busy this week trying to figure out who won what with the last contest and getting those books out. So we'll hold off on announcing a contest today for the last natural, but we will do it when Rob joins us in probably two shows from now. It'll probably be on the show before we take one week off for the 4th of July holiday. So that's where we're at. The last natural, Bryce Harper's big gamble in Sid City and the greatest amateur season ever. I also wanted to remind you that next month, our book club book of the month is going to be a book called The Dream Team by a guy named Jack McCollum who is one of the great sports writers of all time. The reason I want to remind everyone about this book is because tomorrow, the 13th, on the NBA Network, which I'm not sure how many homes that's in, you have uh, Verizon, right, Don? Do you have the NBA Network? Probably not even sure, right? I don't know. I have DirecTV and I have it. So if you have DirecTV, you probably get it. But they're having a documentary on the 13th about the Dream Team. And it might be a good thing to watch if you plan on reading Dream Team, how Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball forever with us in July. Again, that book by Jack McCollum. So I wanted to mention that. So again, this month... Most importantly, the book club book of the month is The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever by Rob Mish. And you can follow Rob on Twitter. Uh, He's at Rob, M-I-E-C-H. You can also follow St. Martin Press, the publisher of the book, if you'd like, at St. Martin's Press. Uh, They gave us a a tweet. We want to thank him for that. But, uh, yeah, that's the book club update for this week. Let's take a break and come back and talk about the NBA Finals with our buddy Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. September 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SI.com as a senior writer where he covers basketball, football, and baseball. He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's best sports writer by the Village Voice. He is making an unprecedented ninth appearance on our podcast, and today he is joining us from his hotel in Oklahoma City, where he is covering the NBA Finals. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Thanks, Steve. How are you? Nine times. You sick of us yet? 
nine times. <laughs> no, man. No, it's uh, my, my pleasure whenever I can hear that song and <laughs> intro like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you, you're in Oklahoma City. We did this last year. Uh, final started in Miami last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So last year we talked to you from Miami say, around the same time, right before game one. This year we're doing it in Oklahoma City. Can you compare the atmospheres between what it was like before game one in Miami last year and what it's like before game one in Oklahoma City this year? I mean, it's not really fair to Miami because whenever you have a small city like this, it's just it overtakes the whole the whole place. I mean, it feels like you're going into you know Eugene, Oregon, or something the weekend of a big Oregon football game, or you know one of these kind of college towns. And that's not to say that Oklahoma City um, is as small as a college town because it's bigger, but you don't feel it. The downtown here is so small. You know, Oklahoma City is kind of a sprawled place. It's not that it, it's really there. The population isn't isn't so minuscule, but a lot of it's spread out. So when you're in this downtown area, it just feels like all thunder all the time. You know, your hotel key card just go thunder on it. Every single restaurant is go thunder. Um, and you know, they have a college mentality here. It's it's not a pro market. Uh, I think the, it was one of the. Um, one of the city officials said that the goal was to win the national championship this huh. week. You know, so they're still kind of learning about pro sports, um, and it's it's one of these places where you have this incredible o- University of Oklahoma fan base and Oklahoma State fan base, and then they come together to cheer on the Thunder, and it's made for an incredibly raucous arena experience, by far the most in the NBA, um, and also just a community that that adopts and feels for its team um, in a way that I don't really think any other city does. I mean, the, the the fan numbers are bigger in L.A. and New York and Boston, but that's because the population's bigger. As far as percentage interest, I would have to think Oklahoma City would be near the top of the league. You know, it's funny about that that official because we had Tass Mellis on the show a few weeks ago, and he was teasing me because I called Oklahoma City, Oklahoma State a couple times in the interview. So I know where that guy's coming from. You know, you, you, when you think of Oklahoma City, you totally think of Oklahoma State and Oklahoma football and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, as we go into the finals, well, okay, one thing before we get into the finals. What the heck happened to the Spurs, yeah. in your opinion? Because, I mean, they were 20-0 and 0 and they're cruising through, and I, I, I've never seen it fall so quickly for a team that looks so great. You know, in in my opinion, it was you know a lot of what they did was was based on incredible system and coaching and execution um, and all these great things that coaches talk about. But in the NBA, usually the team with the best players wins, and Oklahoma City had the best players, and they had it, and that's why the whole series and and really throughout that whole twenty game winning streak, I, I I was skeptical. A lot of the media, I think, was skeptical of the Spurs because it was all about the execution in this system. But the players were still the same. They were still the same ones who lost to Memphis in the first round a year ago and have struggled for all these years. Um, And I think that in the end, Oklahoma City made great adjustments. Scott Brooks probably outcoached Greg Popovich, the coach of the year in that series, which was unlikely. And Oklahoma City really used its superior length athleticism to gum up some of that beautiful Spurs offense that we saw in the first two games. I mean, you kind of saw how 
Tabo Cephalosha, chained to series as far as his defense on Tony Parker and his length, and Ibaka on Ginobili, um, and, and really those guys sparing Durant to do what he did on the other end. Oklahoma City has always been, um, a, or really not always, but for the past year and a half, it's probably been the most talented team in the NBA. But they haven't played completely together. They've been sort of a, a bunch of disparate transcendent parts they would make a lot of their offense off the dribble they you know rank last in the nba in assists they just didn't play together and i was here for game three of that series um in three and four they had 50 assists in those two games and you could sort of see them grow it was i think it was a moment of growth for them where they almost started to play a little bit more like the spurs were playing um and using each other more and using abaca and perkins and you know, Durant waiting toward the end. So, look, it's been a team that has been on the verge for a while, and it's just a matter of when they would get over that hump, and they did it there. You know, getting to the finals now, this is going to be a series that's it's going to be about stars, right? I mean, we're going to hear about yeah. the scoring champion versus the MVP, you know, Durant versus James, and, and then there's Westbrook and there's, uh, uh, excuse me, Wade. But what else is there? What, what is something else a little bit deeper than what we all know on the surface that Lee Jenkins is going to be looking for as these games play out? Well, I mean, I'm going to be looking at the stars, too. That's yeah. for sure. But, I mean, the things to watch for, you know, look, the way Miami built this team was it got it, it, got, it, got its stars, it bought the stars, and then it sort of slapped together the rest in, in kind of a, a slipshod manner. And Oklahoma, whereas Oklahoma City kind of built it more from the ground up, and you'll see that reflected, um, you know, in early second quarters. You'll see that when the second units come in, the superior depth that Oklahoma City has, as far as you know, guys like Nick Collison and, and Harden as a six-man, um, their interior players, how they're they're not. They're not incredibly skilled, but they're definitely more skilled than Miami's, you know, with Perkins and Ibaka. Their ability to kind of clog up the paint against James and Wade, maybe the way Dallas did. Um, so I think that after the, you know, if, if you're talking about like, like let's say you're ranking the top ten players on the floor, okay, you're going to have three from Miami for sure, but then probably your next seven are all from Oklahoma City. And so that kind of illustrates um, that they're a better team than Miami. That doesn't mean I think they're going to win the championship, but it means that I think going in, you can say that they have a more balanced team. You know, going into the series, it seems like, to me, the weight of the world is going to be on LeBron James to deliver a championship, finally have a championship. They went, they kind of set themselves up for this when they said, it's not going to be four, it's not going to be five, it's going to be six. You know, so they put themselves in this position, but it seems like Oklahoma State has a chance to be a little bit looser. You know, they're, they're younger. It's their first, first time. And I don't think that the media is going to jump on Durant if, say, it comes down to a game seven and he clanks the 20-footer for the win. If that happens to James, oh, my goodness. Where do you think the pre- – how do you think the pressure fits into all this? And do you think that because the pressure is always there for the Heat – they might be able to just kind of be well-equipped to handle it. 
Well, no, I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, everything you said there is right. I mean, the Heat are, do have more pressure, um, the, but but they've dealt with it now for two years. Uh, they hand, they've handled it a lot better. I mean, we've seen them in these playoffs uh, in a situation like they were in last year. You know, in, in a Game 6 elimination last year, they folded up against Dallas. This year they really responded um, in Boston with kind of probably the signature win of, uh, of, of LeBron James' tenure in Miami. Oklahoma City is devoid of pressure, and it won't. if they don't win, it won't really matter. They're going to win eventually. Um, but, you know, having said that, I don't really know who that favors because, you know, two years ago, Oklahoma City, well, let's go back. Three years ago, Oklahoma City was 3-29, and 29, okay? Then two years ago, they were kind of everybody's darling, and they lost to the Lakers in the first round, and it was all good. Then last year, they get to the conference finals and lose. Now they're in the finals. So they've taken that progression, um, and they're kind of in the spot where they are probably supposed to be. But, you know, could you see sort of a happy-to-be-there mentality out of them? It's possible. And them playing with a looseness um, and a freedom isn't necessarily always the best thing with them because they kind of verge on reckless at times. I don't think they're going to be loose. I don't think anybody gets to this stage and isn't nervous. You just you never know how youth is going to go. I mean, nobody in that core four is a day over is over 23 years old. Okay, they're all 23 and under, and they're on this this stage. And with them, it could go either way because we've seen them before kind of crumble on big stages like they did against Dallas last year, and especially a guy like Westbrook, who's sort of the barometer for them, uh, you know, he could go either way. And, I, you know, to be honest, I think the Heat is very well prepared for this experience. I don't think that any pressure LeBron feels right now is any greater than anything he's felt, you know, a year ago and, you know, in, against Indiana when he didn't even have Bosch and he had to carry them through that series, against Boston when Wade was kind of in and out and he had to carry them through that series. I think he has been steeled to any kind of pressure um, at this point. And honestly, I think that he and that team um, are in a place of, of great peace and have found a way finally um, to sort of exist within the fishbowl that they're in. And it means accepting losing games. They're going to lose games. They're not that great. They're not as good as they thought they would be. And I think that by now they get that. They're not going to be, you know, probably one of the NBA's great powers. But the goal right now is just to be a champion. And, you know, they're in the spot where they can do that. You know, you might have answered this a little bit when you were talking about depth before, but I wonder if someone could make an argument that, in a way, Durant, Durant, Harden, and Westbrook will kind of cancel out with the big three from Miami, and then if that's the case, the depth and the, as you said, you know, maybe seven of the top ten players being on Oklahoma City might be the difference. Is that maybe how you might handicap this? Yeah, I mean, it might be. I think that's why it's incumbent on LeBron and Wade to outplay Durant and Westbrook, which they should do. Uh, at this point in their careers, they, they should outplay them, uh, but they're going to have to. They're going to have to outplay them for the series. We're going to have to look back on it when it's over for the Heat to win and say Durant and Westbrook just weren't ready. 
um, and, and Wade and LeBron really were. And then that maybe Bosch and, and Harden were a wash. Um, so I think that is a pretty good way to look at it. And because if, if those three cancel each other out, Oklahoma City is going to win the series. And and part of that too is the home court. You know, in this two-three-two format, you really want that. You really want to be at home because it's so hard to win all three in the middle. In Oklahoma City's home court. Um, is just so stifling and, and far different than Miami's. If there is a way that the big three on each side could cancel themselves out, let's say maybe in a game seven, and Miami were to win, who's the fourth guy on Miami that maybe has the potential to step up? Is it maybe a Haslam? Is it maybe a Battier? Is there one of those guys you think that maybe has the ability in a game or two to step up and, and help the Heat steal one? Oh, yeah. I mean, any of those guys, you know, even Mike Miller's playing her, but, you know, he's a great shooter. James Jones is a great shooter. Spolstra manages a lot of that rotation by feel. Um, you know, he does a lot of things that kind of go unnoticed. Uh, you know, it's, it's stuff like Joel Anthony. You know, he's not a guy who's going to come out with some great scoring game, um, but he's a great defensive player and could give the Thunder some problems at the rim. You know, the, the Thunder like to live on the free throw line. The Heat are great at defending you inside without fouling. You know, just incredible body control from some of their big players. Um, you know, Haslam made a, you know, he had some key moments last year against Dallas. He's a guy who won't get, you know, who definitely won't get overwhelmed by the big stage. So, you know, he's a player who could chip in. It's not, it's not like they don't have any useful parts other than those three. They just don't have nearly as many as, as Oak City, which has, you know, a guy like Cephalosha who could hurt you and, and Collison can hurt you and, and, and obviously Harden and some, and those, you know, those big guys. I mean, Ibaka is, uh, you know, an emerging force in the league. We saw him go, you know, 11 for 11 in a game against San Antonio. Adonis Haslam's not going to go 11 for 11. He may make an impact, um, but it's going to be tough for him to, like, you know, to outplay Ibaka, for instance. You mentioned that Brooks had outcoached Popovich, which is incredible to me because I have such respect for Popovich. Who has the edge in terms of coaching in this series? You know, that's a good question. I'd probably say that's a wash at this point. I mean, okay. I... I you know, I have a lot of respect for both those guys. I don't know if you're going to see, um, you know, one be so much better than the other. I, I think Brooks did some great things in that conference final. Um, I thought Spolstra, as it went on, I thought both of them probably um, got a little better as the series went on in the conference finals. I liked a lot of things Spolstra did late, you know, as far as you, you kind of saw Wade and James posting up more. As that series went on, um, you know, a little bit more ball movement from the Heat. To me, wh- where I kind of gauge Spolstra is just on how hard they play. Because there were times against Boston, they were a step slow to lose balls. They were getting kind of, be- you know, Jeff ain't going to hammer this point home on TV, but they were getting beat down court in transition. And, you know, so part of it with him, I think, is just, you know, keeping that motivation up keeping those guys on edge the whole time. They are still very talented, but against Against, and against Boston, you can afford some breaks. But against the Thunder, you can't because they will beat you. I mean, if they are slow getting packed down court, Russell Westbrook will, will beat them to death. Um, so, you know, him he's got to kind of keep them on edge the entire time. So I think his challenge is probably greater than Brooks's is. Brooks is different. It's more about kind of reining in the boundless energy that is the young Thunder. You know, we've talked about this series from, from a bunch of different spots. We've talked about the cities talked about the coaches, we've talked about the stars, uh, we've talked about the benches, you know, kind of. What, 
when you're looking at this and breaking it down, is there another kind of an X factor that is hidden in there that we kind of haven't talked about? Is there something I'm missing? No, I mean, I think this whole, you know, this whole notion of, you know, late game situations is going to be, you know, it's going to, it's always fascinating with the Heat to watch kind of how they handle late game. And I think they've, you know, because even Wade admitted when I talked to him like a month ago, you know, he even said it's still kind of uncomfortable with, with him and James. And you sort of saw in the playoffs some aspects of them not taking turns as much, but more so playing off each other, like where, when you'll see kind of one on one side of the court and the other on another. And they're kind of, they're kind of like attacking in concert a little bit more. It's hard to articulate, um, but I felt like I saw it, especially late in that Boston game, you know, if they can close that way or if they can kind of, you know, if they can hang around in these games in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City allowed Dallas to steal a game in, in the first two, and Dallas didn't. They allowed the Lakers to do the same, and they didn't either. Mm-hmm. They really blew away the Spurs. But I think one of these two games in Oklahoma City will be there for the Heat's taking, and this whole issue that hovers over them, does LeBron, can LeBron close? You know, how does that happen at the end? You know, I think that would be big for the Heat to exercise some of those demons and steal a game in Oklahoma City. I mean, they, they almost have to in order to win the series. Um, and on the other side, you know, Oklahoma City is kind of more predictable with what they do at the end. It's really Durant's show. And he's been bearing these long, you know, mid-range jumpers that so many guys in the NBA are told not to take, and he, he gets them. You know, how he responds to LeBron's physicality against him. You know, Durant's stronger than he gets credit for, but he's still pretty slender. And it's going to be interesting to me over a seven-game series to see how he holds up to sort of that relentless strength that, that LeBron has um, because they're going to be against each other a lot. I, I, I actually see LeBron and Westbrook at times when Westbrook is rolling, but in late-game situations, the Thunder likes to go to Durant. and look, Durant's a superior shooter to LeBron, but in most other aspects of the game, including defense, you know, LeBron is still a step above. And I, I don't know, that, that to me is interesting, just because Durant is still so slender and LeBron is such a bull that I think that, you know, that matchup could be, it could be more challenging for Durant, even though he's had some success against LeBron in the past. Who are you picking? You know, I told Phil the other day, it's like, I, I, we've talked about it. I think the Thunder has, um, I think they have kind of the superior front court, the superior bench, more scores, a better home court, a more balanced team. And I'm picking the Heat. And I know that just sounds crazy, but it, like a year ago, I was thinking that Dallas had no shot, and it was just Dirk Nowitzki's time. And in the NBA, sometimes one transcendent player can make all these matchups we talk about. He can kind of make all of them moot and just go away. And I think LeBron James, it's just his time, and he has the capability of doing that. And I think he's going to have an incredible series. I think Wade and Bosch are going to play really well, too. And the Thunder will just have to wait another year. I mean, I, you know, it could, I could totally see it going the other way. Um, but being around them a little bit in the heat, it just seems as though it's kind of time for the world to move on to another storyline and for the narrative to, to change and not be, can LeBron James win a championship? You know, at some point he's going to do it and, I don't know, everything about his body language and the way he's played over the past six months uh, indicates that, that, that it's now. 
Sportscasters are finishing up with our good pal Lee Jenkins. You can follow during the finals on Twitter at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Uh, one, uh, two real quick things and we'll let you go. I, I know it's finals and you're yeah. probably busy, but uh, your colleague Jack McCollum has a book coming out in July that's going to be our book club book of the month that focuses on the Dream Team. Yeah. And yeah. tomorrow on the NBA Network, there's going to be a documentary about the Dream Team. And I was just curious if you had any – like when the dream team is brought up and we have these conversations and these, these thoughts and you remember what they did and what they accomplished, it just kind of, what comes to your mind? Like, is there any like little things or anecdotes that you recall about that great team? You know, they, um, they had training or they trained, um, where I grew up, uh, like up near Torrey Pines in La Jolla and they would all go golfing at, at Torrey Pines. Uh, this was like before the Olympics. They had some kind of retreat or training camp up there. I mean, I was just, I was at 14 and, uh, you know, my friends and I would all go up there and, and wait for them and try to get autographs. And, uh, you know, they were larger than life. It was, you know, there aren't that many teams who were beloved even just for winning blowouts. You know, it's right. like, it's kind of like those early 90s UNLV teams or something. Just the dominance um, was so much fun. And, you know, it was like a rock band or something. I remember, you know, hanging out in the lobby of their hotel and, and seeing those guys. So you know, there will probably never be a team put together that is that overwhelming. Um, and uh, so you know, there is something iconic about about them and it, it, it's just been something I think that USA basketball has forever been trying to chase and probably never will. It's sort of like the Olympics when it comes to the United States, it's just for basketball, it's just kind of a rough thing because it's like if they win, it's not really a story. Right. And if they lose, it's a huge story. And that's just a terrible position to be in, but it's kind of part of the legacy of the dream team because they were so dominant. You know, uh, Sports Illustrated in its history has always been rich in basketball talent. I mean, we had Frank DeFord on about a month ago now, and he was one of the pioneers of basketball journalism. And right. uh, we mentioned, you know, McCollum and his book that's coming out and how great he is and, and Mark Cram and all these guys. And even today, it's like when I think about the guys who cover basketball for SI, it blows me away. You know how much we, we respect you, and there's Chris Mannix, and there's, uh, there's other guys. Take us a little bit, like peel the curtain behind just a little bit for us, and tell us kind of how SI approaches covering uh, an event like this, meaning the NBA Finals. Like the Finals? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really tricky. I mean, we have a, a pretty big web presence. We have three people here who will be writing – and I'll be writing tonight for the website too, but we have three people who'll be writing for SI.com. And then I'm kind of in charge of the magazine coverage. So it's tricky because so our deadline is Sunday night, mm-hmm. and that'll be after game three. So if that series is 2-1, I'll write sort of a thematic, more thematic story um, that they will do encapsulate both teams and probably get it, try to get inside the Durant-LeBron matchup in some way. Um, and then if it's 3-0, I'll need to revisit that and tilt right. it toward a team basically, you know, on the verge of winning a championship, sort of more of a, a crowning story, which, you know, which puts me in a little bit of a typical position because let's say the Thunder win the two in Oklahoma City, I probably have to, you know, redirect my efforts and then pull kind of an all-nighter Sunday night, um, depending on, on which scenario we're talking about. And then the following week, you're looking at a team, you know, preparing to write the story of a team winning a title. Um, you know, a year ago, I had to prepare for Miami winning it, 
and Dallas winning it, and then it ended up that Dallas, you know, did finish it off. And then the nightmare scenario is that that next Sunday you have a three-three series mm. that you're writing that Sunday night because that's just a horrible spot because the magazine comes out on a Wednesday when someone will have won the championship already. Um, so wow. that's what you know. To be honest, that's what I kind of pray doesn't happen. Right. I just want anything but a game seven. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, it's funny. Like they, the uh, the league will prepare T-shirts for both teams to win, right. and yeah, then the, the losers, the losers go to Africa. Yeah. yeah, they go to. So, does that happen with your columns? Like, do does do the the stuff that you prepare? For, you said you have to prepare for both teams to win. So, does like the losing columns you send them to the African <laughs> side or something? They should. You know, it's funny. I say that it, what we do for the NCAA tournament is the most wild. Um, in the Final Four, what you do is. So going in, you get a half. You have two writers assigned to the Final Four for the magazine. So you'll get a half of the bracket. Okay. So you know there was a year I got UCLA and Memphis. So you're reporting both teams in case they win it. Right. Then when one of those teams wins the national semifinal on Saturday night, you pull an all-nighter and you write the story of that team as if they'd won it, and you file it. Because that national championship game is played on Monday night, Monday so they night, need to have right. the story in. So then the game happens, and you write like 500 words for the top of the story live that night, but everything else is already in. So when Memphis played for the national championship against Kansas, you know, I love my story in Memphis. It's one of my favorite stories I've ever gotten to do. I had really incredible access to that team, um, thanks to John Calipari, and they were just you know, a really live and colorful bunch, Derek Rose and you know, a bunch of guys with interesting stories and they represented a, a really colorful fan base and city. And and, you know, as people probably know, they they lost on a you Barely. know, they yeah. melted down at the free throw line. Mm-hmm. Mario Chalmers makes a game winning three and, you know, that story never saw the light of day and um, I just remember being slumped over outside the <laughs> locker room, you know, next to Rose. I felt like I was almost as upset as he was. Jesse Jackson, like, checked to make sure we were okay. But it was, uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, you kind of, in those moments, you are, you know, there's no cheering in the press box or whatever, but I was definitely rooting hard for Memphis that night. That's incredible. Well, uh, have fun with the finals. I guess I hope it doesn't go seven games for your sake. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> I said, you. Uh, you can follow Lee on Twitter, which I'm sure will be keeping us up to date on what he posts on the website. He always does a great job with that, um, at SI underscore Lee Jenkins, and uh, look forward to reading about it. And I know we'll talk to you soon since you've been on nine times. Like, I don't know. Have you, are you married, Lee? Am I married? Yeah. What's that? Are you married? Yeah, yeah. 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 Have we, you, we have two kids. Yeah. Have you had your 10th anniversary yet? I'm on nine. Nine. <laughs> nine. Okay. So you, okay. Because I want to know, same. like, what we're supposed to get you when you come on for the tenth time. You know, like each year has like a, like you know, t- I have no idea what they are. I'm not married, so I have no idea. But, oh right, right. You know, like each no, year is to get a certain uh, thing. So I'm wondering what I'm supposed to get you for our tenth anniversary when you come on the tenth time. That's but. all right, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Lee. Uh, it was fun as always. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Lee. Take care, man. Yep. All right, I want to thank the great Lee Jenkins for being on the podcast for the ninth time. Don, I kind of threw him off when I asked him if he was, he was married. married right yeah, then. he didn't know what to say. He's like, uh, yeah, we have two children. Uh, but <laughs> I was just messing with Lee, who will make his 10th appearance on the show soon, I'm sure. Uh, okay, we've been kind of – there's been so much in, in terms of the NHL and the NBA playoffs 
we almost can't give it justice in three things. So we wanted to uh, want at least one more. It's probably the last time today, I'd imagine, sure, because yeah. with hockey ending and probably will be able to handle the NBA playoffs on their own with it just being the finals in three things from here on. So probably the last time for this segment until next spring. But let's just start with the NBA real quickly because we just did it with Lee. I guess the thing I want to ask you, Don, is the NBA got probably the best possible finals matchup. Yeah. They have the leading scorer versus the MVP. They have Miami, Oklahoma City. They've been the two best teams with Chicago in the mix there. Unfortunately, their season and got ruined injuries, with a bunch yeah. of injuries. But will you watch? I think I might. Yeah. Yeah, I think I might. Uh Game one is tonight. Game two is what Thursday. Yeah, and then Sunday. I then believe. Sunday. Yeah, so I'm not sure I'll be glued. It won't exactly be appointment television, but the fact that I'm considering it is good from basketball's point of view because I'm just I'm not typically a fan. But yeah, I, th- I think I'll I'll be watching. You know, the NBA scored huge ratings with the series on ESPN, the Celtics and the and the Heat. Right. It had great ratings on that. And it feels like they have really good momentum. And they're the second league in a row that is going to have labor trouble. And they even canceled a bunch of games. Right, right. And they're going to walk away from it like it never happened. You know, this league is at an all-time high. Maybe not an all-time high. I mean, you know, that might have been the Jordan 90s, era. Yeah. But they're in a great spot right now. They have a great final. They have NBA players competing in the Olympics this summer. Mm-hmm. It's the anniversary of the Dream Team, which we talked about in the book club update. So they got that going kind of as a, a sub-story. LeBron James has been on the cover of Sports Illustrated 14 times, according wow. to Richard Deitch. Uh, he could win his first championship here. If he doesn't, Kevin Durant, who might be the next great star in the league, will win his first championship. But that doesn't mean that the NHL should try it. No. <laughs> that, let's hope that the the hockey game that we watched – Last night wasn't the last game that we see until January, like our buddy Adrian Dater tweeted last night. He said, I'll see you in January after the lockout. Wow. The league can't make that mistake again. I, They can't, right? I mean, no, they can't. <laughs> they have to they know They have a great too. television partner. You know, we mentioned last week how even though the ratings weren't great for the finals, they didn't need to be like they had in past years. Because they have a contract. They have a 10-year contract. Yep. It's in the billions. They seemingly have a good thing going with uh, the salary cap. Yep, and L.A. I mean, the players don't love that, but... Just make the adjustments that you need, find the compromises, and don't take the risk. As for the the series that we just watched, look at If the Devils win one of those overtime games in the beginning, we're looking at a seven-game series. Yeah. You know, the Devils hung in there. I, I thought we might have to come on today and talk about what might be the great sportscasters jinx because the interview that we did with Matt Wrights last week when the Kings <laughs> were up 3-0, yeah. we had eliminated the Devils. And he had no problem doing it, by the way. Right. And I joked around a little bit on Twitter that maybe he upset the hockey gods because that's his team and his problem, not ours. Right, and I was, I was, I I would say I was rooting more for the Devils than the Kings. I didn't really have a large rooting interest. Just, I guess I would say I was rooting for because – Parise might be the my favorite player on either team, and then there's like Mike some... Richards might be my least favorite player on either team. But I didn't have an overwhelming interest in it either way. But it was more interesting 
with the fact that the Devils won two games in there, obviously then if they got swept. You know, as Sabres fans, there were some really interesting stories in there. You had Jordan Nolan. Uh, Ted Nolan's son. Ted Nolan's son winning the cup for the Kings. You had Henrik Talinder, who was a guy that when he came into the lineup, they won two, they in, won a two yeah. in a row. A former Sabre, a really good Sabre too. A yeah. guy that when he got injured in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2006 – so big reason why the Sabres didn't win the cup that year. Um and also you had a lot of Western New York. The goat of it in Bernier being oh. a former Sabre. Yeah, yeah, for you know, a hot minute there. Yeah. And you know, he ends up being the story today. You mentioned to me off air as a tough call in the sense that they let the stall hit go. Or stole, Jordan stole. It wasn't as bad as the Bernier hit, which was awful, but it should have been penalized. And then three goals, and then that was just it, right? Yeah, and even the referees, not that it was intentional, obviously, but the referee just couldn't get out of the way on the one goal, and that directly right. led to a goal. Yep. They, they could never clear the puck. Uh, look, you don't win a 6-1 game. And there was a huge disparity last night in terms of penalty minutes. Huge. Yeah, and they were mostly – deserved a lot of them were high sticks that you just couldn't get away from i mean you cut the guy's face uh, i think it was in the second period and you have to get called for it i mean the refs i believe even the announcer said it's human nature that when a game is going this way that you're going to call more for the devils because they were down and you you just you're not going to you're going to try to avoid calling power plays for the kings they just couldn't uh, so i mean the better team won it, yeah, I mean, the the Kings had a great playoffs, a historic playoffs in a lot of senses. They only lost one game on the road. Yeah, I guess that would be, like I said, I was probably rooting a little bit more for the Devils, but if I wanted to root for history, I guess I should have wanted the sweep because that would have been one of the all-time great playoff runs. As it was, it was pretty solid. The but... Kings were 3 of 9 on the power play last night. The Devils were 0 of 2. Yeah, that's brutal. So that sucks. But here's what we'll close out the segment on this. We'll talk more about the NBA Finals during three things in the next couple of weeks, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And like Don said, he's admitted many times, and as I have I, we're not huge basketball guys, but I think we're both going to be there for – More interested than normal. Yeah, yeah we're going to be there for this series. We're going to watch some of it. At I would say it's least. the most interested I've been since high school. You know, like, I, I think Cuban got me there a little bit last year because okay. I, I like Cuban. Yeah, and yeah. It was Cuban versus James, so that one had a little juice for me. But, yeah, you're right. Since Jordan, this might be the one that I've been most excited for. There was some in there that weren't great. Like, you know, the, like the Sixers made it one year with Iverson, but you knew the Lakers were going to win. The, Net, the Nets or the Pistons dynasty wasn't that really interesting. Who was it? The Houston Rockets won the one year that Jordan wasn't in the league. They won both years that Jordan wasn't in the league. I guess he returned for the playoffs a little bit the second year, but. Here's what I want to – so we'll get to the NBA. We'll do more of that. But to close this segment today, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you, Don, when you look back at this NHL season, what are you going to remember most? Whew. That's tough. I mean, it's going to be a year where more than ever the regular season didn't matter because you, you had, had teams like Van- Vancouver falling right right away. The, uh, the Rangers had a nice – were they, were the Rangers the one? They lost in the – yeah, they lost in the Eastern Conference They lost finals. in the finals, so they yeah. had a nice run. Boy, what will I remember more than anything? That's a tough call. Maybe maybe Malkin. I mean, he's always been great, but again, there were people a few years back that might have argued that Crosby was the second best center on his team. 
and that's probably a little bit that's probably exaggerated but i mean malkin made a case for it again this year he was just phenomenal and that team to stay afloat as long as they did i, I mean i thought they were the favorites to win the cup once they made it in there and they just couldn't yeah they might have you know, maybe it was just Crosby came back too late and they couldn't get everything figured out just right, and they had a tough first-round draw with Philly. Stamkos is an interesting story too, I suppose. Uh, maybe more interesting than Stamkos is the fact that they had a guy like Stamkos on that team and still missed the playoffs. Yeah, and maybe the last thing we should mention is the Calder Cup ended on Saturday. I didn't see the goal. I heard it was a disaster that well, they called Well, yeah, wrong here's and... what happened. So the Calder Cup, is the Norfolk Admirals and the Toronto Marlies. For non-hockey people, this is like the minor league. Right, AAA equivalent. AAA equivalent for hockey. So there's a team in there, Norfolk. They won the last 28 regular season games. Okay. Dominant team, one of the great AHL teams of all time. They go 28-0. and Then they get into playoffs and eventually they went 15 and 3 the first round is a best of 3 so they won 43 of the last 46 games wow one of the <laughs> great wow. teams in the history of professional sports well they're up 2 to nothing they win the first two games at home in the finals they go to toronto the game is 0-0 goes to overtime in overtime admiral's defenseman fires the puck in off the boards goalie comes out to play it hits a stanchion and goes into the net well, when he fired it in, it was a delayed offsides, and the guys were leaving the zone. If that shot would have went right on net and the goalie would have had to make a save, they blow that dead. Right. Because you can't score on a delayed offsides like that. Right. Well, the officials didn't apply the rule because it didn't hit the goalie. It hit the stanchion, and because the goalie wasn't in the net, it went in. But what if he took a shot and the goalie wasn't in the net and it was offside? Is that no longer? Wouldn't have been a goal. That's so weird. So they misapplied the rule. They admitted they misapplied the rule. And then they basically said, but there's nothing we can do about it now. Game four comes around. Toronto's done. The Admirals win 6-1. to one. Corey Conacher, who's from Burlington, Ontario, played his college hockey at Canisius. Someone I'm, I hope we can get on this podcast maybe next week. Talk about this stuff. Finishes one of the great AHL seasons of all time. He won. The Rookie of the Year, he won the MVP. He had two goals in the All-Star game. He had four goals, four assists, excuse me, in the clincher. It's an unbelievable season. Someone that, according to Tampa Bay Prospect websites, will absolutely be a member of the team. That's unbelievable. Next year. This is a kid who played D1 hockey at Canisius, was the youngest freshman in all of NCAA hockey his freshman year. He's got diabetes, which he battles every day of his life. Now, to pull back that curtain even, Great story. even further, I mean, you know him personally. Did you I do. know him before Canisius? Or? No, I, well, I met him one time when Canisius was recruiting him. Here's the reason I know him. My brother played for a, a hockey team called St. Francis Prep, and his sophomore year, the captain was a kid named Vinny Scarcella, who committed to Canisius as a junior in high school. His senior year of high school, they were recruiting Corey, and I met him one time that year. Okay. Then, over the four years, watching Vinny play hockey, Vinny's a friend of both of ours, really, uh, watching him play, I got to know Corey, uh, hooked Corey up, he played some roller hockey with us, hooked him up with the roller hockey organization, whatever, but what this kid has done in his pro hockey career in just a year and a half of pro hockey is incredible. 
He got a two-way contract in the NHL this year. So that's really an incredible story. Awesome. I, I wanted to mention that. So, Is that something you would have seen? Like no. I, well, here's the thing about Corey. I mean, he scored he a got, ton of goals in Canisius. He was great at Canisius. The all-time leading scorer there. Right. And Vinny's number two. Yeah, they, they, they tore it up there Like as far as countrywide goal scoring goes. And they went to the Frozen Forest. Or they lost to a team that went to the Frozen Forest seniors. Right. You know, they, they were they – were, you could probably say they were the best team in Canisius history their senior year. You know, Canisius is a throwaway hockey program. Right. I mean, they were big fish in a little little pond there kind of at Canisius. But, I mean, they made the most of it. He, I mean, Corey's a five – he's five foot eight. Yeah. You know, he's short. And he's young still. But he's going to get a shot to play some really serious, serious hockey. And it couldn't happen to a nicer kid. This kid loves hockey, by the way. Yeah. He lives, breathes – plays hockey congratulations to him congratulations to the norfolk admirals who finished an unbelievable that's, that's season insane yeah 43 of 46 their record over the course of the season is unbelievable we've already gone farther than we wanted to go in this segment but yes, i wanted sorry. to mention that stuff uh so let's take a break we're gonna come back with mike woods and then we'll close the show out with uh, a real quick pick four Our next guest today is a native of Massachusetts and is a graduate of Ohio Wesleyan University. He has been covering boxing since 1990 and is a board member of the Boxers Writing Association of America. He is a contributing writer for ESPN the Magazine and the editor of TheSweetScience.com. He is a former fighter himself and also writes for ESPN New York and the Huffington Post. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Michael Woods. How you doing today, Mr. Woods? Suck, maybe I can be back. Maybe maybe there'll be a second time if I don't stink. Steve, <laughs> thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man. All right. So here's the thing. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I I used to watch when I was when I was younger. My grandpa and I we used to watch Mike Tyson, and we used yeah. to after the fights we used to talk about how awesome it was and and yeah. how he just he would dominate these guys and. And I, I I have that memory and and you know boxing because of that is, you know a, a sport that's close to my heart, and I love what twenty four seven has done for the sport. You know I but love, I sense a butt coming on. Yeah, the butt is is yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I watched the I watched the fight the other night. Yeah. Enthusiastically. Oh good. Potentially illegally. Uh. Uh, okay, okay. Okay. Off but, the record. Off the record. Right. Yep. But I watched it, and I gotta <laughs> say that by the third, fourth, maybe fifth round, I felt like I was bored to tears by the mm-hmm. kind of methodical dominance I thought I was witnessing from Pacquiao. And I just, uh, I just started. Uh, I made it through ten rounds of rewatching it today, and. You know, I found myself drifting off as well. It wasn't. A, it was by no means a classic. So you, you, you're not to be blamed there. It was no classic. For yeah, sure. it just felt. It felt workmanlike. It felt like he was landing harder punches. He was landing more punches. You right. know, I and I was wondering when I heard the decision, which I as soon as they said one fifteen, one thirteen, Pacquiao, the first one, it just felt fishy to me. I'm like, uh, right. Oh, that's right. that's weird because. 
I didn't because they're not going to say his name. They're not going to say if he if he won uh, a uh, a decision on all the cards, they wouldn't have said his name. They would right. have just said the score. So immediately when you hear his name, you say, "Uh oh." Yeah, it just it felt weird. Controversy. And then, you know, Bradley wins, and the first thing I did, and maybe this is just a sign of the times, is I picked up my iPad and, and loaded Twitter. I because I because I thought maybe I just don't have a trained eye to see that. Maybe I missed it, you know. No. And uh, so you do have a trained eye. So tell me what your tell me what happened. Your eyes didn't lie, Mister Bennett. So what happened? What happened? Uh, a seventy-one-year-old and a seventy-four-year-old man who may have been doing this for too long both weighed in, and. Uh, a woman weighed in too, and nothing. There's nothing wrong with a woman judging, but two out of the three, I believe, yeah, they got it wrong. Here's the thing: it is such a subjective exercise, and there is no criteria, a protocol that all the judges and all the various jurisdictions and all the various states use. So every judge probably judges in a different fashion, and they reward different things. And so two people, two of the three people, rewarded Tim Bradley on Saturday night more than you or I, or I would say the vast majority of the people who watched believe he should have been rewarded. Now, I watched it on Saturday night, and, you know, I'm the editor of that website, so I want to type it up as it's going on and get it up as quick as I can. So, Steve... There are rounds where I might miss five seconds of action, right? But right. I'm looking down and typing. So I always take my score on fight night with a grain of salt. What did that you have said, in that fight night? What did you that said I I had Bradley winning only one round okay. clearly. Yeah. Now yesterday and today I started rewatching it with the sound off. Right, because I said to myself, well, don't maybe, want to be swayed. Uh, maybe Lampley and and Calibman and Stewart and and Letterman convinced me uh, subconsciously, tip me towards Pacquiao. So I watched with the sound off. Now through ten rounds, I had only found one round that I really, honestly, clearly could give to Bradley. However, Steve, while watching it and knowing that I got to bend over backwards because I want to. I really want to make sure that if I'm using the word robbery, I want to make sure I'm using it correctly and not just throwing it around. I found the majority of those rounds were close, that Hmm. none of them were runaway rounds. And so, therefore, people scoring it, could they plausibly score it for Bradley? And I found myself saying in most of the rounds, yes. Do I agree with them? No. But does it mean they're corrupt or even inept? Probably not. So I want to learn a lesson from this. And I think one of the lessons is from what you talked about, referencing of I picked up my iPad and I went on Twitter. I think in this day and age, we're prone to hop on a bus of outrage more quickly than we used to. And we're processing a fight in which we believe that an error has occurred in the judging, and we quickly find ourselves finding other like-minded people. What can happen is a snowball effect. 
Right. Now more than any other time, because we're all getting on this same page and we're whipping each other up into a frenzy. I think this is sort of what happened here. The rounds were close. No one ran away with them. Pacquiao didn't run away. He missed a lot of punches. Now, CompuBath says that he threw 100 more and he landed X amount more. Uh, you know, we can then get into a debate about CompuBox, and those are human beings determining whether someone landed a punch or didn't. So, in other words, I think we're still learning lessons from this fight, and I don't believe, I, I short and long of it, I'm, I'm prepared to say, you know what, when I said robbery right away, I may be prepared to back off that a little bit. Do I agree with the decision? No, I don't. But maybe. I haven't finished watching yet. I still want to marinate this in my head a little bit more. But I may be prepared to back off a little bit. But hmm. you know what you said about not being a classic and being kind, kind of boring? Yeah. That's why I don't even want to rematch. Yeah. So. You know, have you ever heard a championship caliber fighter stand in the ring after the match and say he has to review the tape to see if he won? You know, in boxing, the theater of the unexpected, something new pops up all the time. It's why I believe it's the best sport to cover because everyone's freelancing and so many strange and delightful and sometimes shady characters involved in it lends itself to be written about. But have I ever seen that? Not to my recollection. It made me like Bradley a little bit more because he wasn't blustering Steve afterwards and saying, I won that fight. As he did, by the way, two days later when he said, well, my jab really did it. Really, really. No offense. I mean, your jab would break my nose in ten different places. <laughs> but as far as jabbing Manny Pacquiao, you got you were jabbing with kind of like little alligator arms. You saw Manny Pacquiao's face after that punch. There were no power punches. Nothing nothing really bothered him. So I, I thought it was to his credit that he did say, i got to watch the thing to see if I actually won. Uh... Did he actually win? Uh, you know, I, this is. Let, let me say this. I'm gonna. Re, I'm gonna watch it. You know, I'm gonna watch the last two rounds, and then I don't want to watch it again because the fight wasn't that good. But with the Twitter deluge that occurs now after fights, and we basically get about one a month in which people are saying that that was a robbery. The judges got it <laughs> wrong. We find ourselves watching and rewatching fights now more than ever, also because they're available much more frequently now on YouTube and wherever else you, can, you want to stream it from. So it's like, damn, I'm spending more time as a boxing writer now. Um, you know, the, the salary doesn't really increase, but you're spending more time uh, as far as being a sports writer now than you ever used to because you're, you're watching and rewatching and then rewatching again frequently. These fights are not anything that you would actually find yourself wanting to rewatch if there weren't some controversy attached to it. You know, my stepdad always told me that my best homework was a failed test. And maybe for Pacquiao, yeah. this is a failed yeah. test a little bit. And you know what? There were so many, to me, as a casual boxing fan, yeah. so many red flags kind of going into the fight beforehand. I mean, he wants to watch the basketball game, and then, <laughs> you know, and then he's, he's like, they're showing him he's not around, and he's supposedly on a treadmill right. stretching these calves, which Grantland.com kind of wrote something about maybe. So, right. like, that's a red flag. And then he kind of comes out, and he goes to the ring dry, and he's standing around right before he comes in with his – he just didn't seem like he was – he didn't seem – there was no intensity there. To me, it didn't seem like – and then I thought he fought that way. I thought he fought a really kind of – like I said in the beginning of the interview, a methodical kind of, right. I thought, workman-like, getting it done, but 
not impressing right. anyone. Did he learn maybe from that? Because he had considerably more power, it seemed like, than Bradley. It seemed like he, and especially with Bradley's injury on his foot, it seemed like he right. maybe could have been more aggressive. Is this a learning experience for Pacquiao? I'm not sure if it's learning, Stephen, or if it's aging. Okay. He's 33, and you and I don't know. Freddie Roach, I'm sure, knows, but he's not telling us. I believe that probably he knows now that he doesn't have the energy and the stamina that he had, say, three years ago even, and he has to conserve more. And that's why possibly you saw him uh, conserving energy in rounds, flurrying late and trying to steal rounds. Also, it was a matter of Tim Bradley as an underrated defender. His head movement is... Is, is is really hard to pick up, and uh, he's very active moving his head, and it's hard to get a beat on it. And I think Manny realized that, and he said to himself, you know, I'm not going to overexpend energy. This guy is a hard target to uh, to tag. I'm not going to overexpend energy. And frankly, I'm 33 years old, and uh, I just don't have the energy that I used to. So I'm not sure if it's a learning experience or if it's simply a function of getting older. You know, anyone who's around the sport that loves the sport, you know, dreams of the day that Pacquiao and Mayweather will get in the ring together. Right now, Mayweather's in jail. Uh, Pacquiao just lost a fight, and they're talking about rematch and things like that. With I think maybe November 4th is a date thrown around. You, you said he's 33 right. years old. I think Mayweather's right. older than that. Every day that goes by, it right. seems like it's less likely to happen. In your opinion, someone Absolutely. who covers the sport day to day, are we ever going to see that fight? Here's here's what I want you to pick up on, and 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 your listeners, when and if they see an item in the newspaper that says that Mayweather has dropped his or Pacquiao has dropped his defamation lawsuit against Team Mayweather for alleging PED usage, when and if you see that. That is your signal that they are getting close to making the fight. I believe until that happens, the chances are very unlikely because, think about it, if I was suing you, would you be very much interested in letting that go on and then getting going into business with me no. in, on, on a promotion and then, quote-unquote, rewarding me with $40 million? Think about it from Mayweather's perspective. This guy is suing me, and I'm going to work in concert with him to make the largest pay to help him make the largest payday he's ever made. Stephen, do you think that's going to happen? If you're Floyd Mayweather, are you going to let that happen? No, it. it, it believe me, I, everything I see, I, I I don't see it happening. It seems like they're too yeah. far apart on the money. You know, I, you mentioned that they're they're fighting about PEDs. I. I it seems to me like it never happened, but it just feels like a shame because it, it seems like that's the one card that could give the sport a day that it had back when we had things like Tyson and Holyfield or even further back when we had things like right. Ali and Frazier. You know, I, I don't know what else besides those two. And you can tell me, besides those two coming together, is there another matchup that can bring that kind of, maybe not that level, no. but some kind of no. juice to the sport? No. Not even not even anywhere close. And you can argue that it's a function of money wrecking the sport. If the, if the purses were of a level seen in the you know, 80s or whenever else, 
do you think you would have the same obstinacy in, in Mayweather and Pacquiao? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's possible that you wouldn't. Listen, boxing has that freelance aspect to it. It doesn't have a commissioner telling people what to do. They don't make up the schedule before the season starts, and then you don't adhere to it. So that allows many strange and wonderful things to happen, but it also sometimes makes it so things that should happen don't. You take the good with the bad. We try to concentrate on the good, ideally, or the sport will drive you crazy. Um, but in this situation, it's hard because it makes so much sense to so many people. It's the one fight people want to see. Uh, anyone involved in it is going to make oodles of money, and let's be frank, that's really United in the United States, many if not most people's reason for being a team. So from that perspective, you would think it would get done. Yet it, it doesn't happen. And so what happens is it leaves people just frustrated and saying, well, this is an absolute no-brainer, yet it doesn't happen. What kind of idiots are running this asylum? Hmm. The sportscasters are here with Michael Woods. You can find him on Twitter at Woodsy1069. Like I said in the beginning, he's the editor of the SweetScience.com, a great website uh, for boxing fans. And he's all over ESPN, the magazine, all kinds of different stuff, ESPN New York, uh, on politics a little bit, on Huffington Post, all kinds of stuff if you want to find uh, Woodsy out there. Um, kind of maybe a last thing, you know, you mentioned kind of the knee-jerk reaction on Twitter. And, and one of the knee-jerk reactions I've seen was, I think he was the director of the Las Vegas Hilton Sportsbook, tweeted mm-hmm. that if it was up to him, he'd never give action on another boxing match ever again. That was a, that was a knee jerk reaction, right? You don't think this was corruption. You just think that this was just a few people just seen it a different way because it was marginal, right? right? That's what you, I don't think it's I don't think it's corruption. So listen, I don't follow the gambling world at all. That's a vice that I never got into, thankfully. Um, but Pacquiao was heavily favored, and the underdog won big. So wouldn't that mean that he kind of took a bath on this fight? So that was his knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Oh, wait, oh, yeah. damn, this time I had to actually pay out so much. <laughs> right. And he was cranky about it. Oh, come on, usually he, usually they win. The house always wins. So he can maybe he should retire his Twitter account. But as far as corruption goes, um, another thing with this information age and the ease of, of, uh, of uh, interaction and communication, it means that a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth even pops out of its seat. And you can dispense these conspiracy theories or theories that there is corruption, and and it can spread far and wide very quickly. But show me some proof, or at least some allegations that make some sense to me before, please, anyone get into this. You know, it's like the uh, Kennedy assassination (laughs) It's really hard, Stephen, to keep a secret. People like to blab things, get a couple whiskeys in them, and they'll blab it real quick to anyone, that, you know what I mean, in a bar. So it's really hard to keep a secret. And so you mean to tell me that two of the three judges were bought off on Saturday night? Um, I just find it implausible. Now, will judges sometimes vote one way because they know which way people in power want them to vote uh, i'm sure yeah absolutely usually the more popular guy with the more the bigger promotional push he's going to get the nod as brandon rios did against unknown richard abrio a couple months ago so is it corruption or is it just sort of the way things work it's i guess it it it, it 
it, it matters what your what your definition of corruption is. But is there were there bags of money, brown paper bags of money being handed off? No, and I don't I don't think so, and I don't think that really happens all that often either. Um, as much as you know, in the 1950s, I was rather prevalent. But no, it just it doesn't happen. I, I chalk it up more to ineptitude, or even just the subjective nature of it. Probably more than anything else, the subjective nature of uh, of the act of judging the price. Like it's really hard, and this is why I make a joke on Twitter. I'm sorry, I hope I don't run it in the ground like some people do on on Twitter. But a joke that I have a, in my basement laboratory. I'm working on robot judges that will replace the human beings, so uh, we can uh, end these ridiculous, uh, controversial judging decisions. Robot judges, be ready for them in 2014. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again next time something going on in the fight world. It's at Woodsy1069 on Twitter. TheSweetScience.com is the website. ESPN The Magazine, ESPN New York, Huffington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You do a great job, sir. You keep it up. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Michael Woods for making his debut on the show. Talk boxing with us. I also want to thank Lee Jenkins and SL Price. Jenkins, it was his ninth time. Price is second. Uh, thanks to the guests today. The last piece of business today is pick four, and I want to do this kind of quickly because we've really, we, I think this has been a great show. We got great interviews for you and some good segments with Don and I. So close out pick four real quick. Before we get to that, I want to mention you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter, www.twitter.com dot com slash sports underscore casters or just simply at sports underscore casters email us anytime you like the sportscasters at gmail.com our blog the sportscasters.blogspot.com the latest blog up is a blog i did about the la king's dominance and a book that we've mentioned a bunch of times on the show behind the moves which you can buy if you're interested www.nhlgms.com uh, also you can find our tumblr sportscasters.tumblr.com. One thing I use Tumblr for occasionally is making fun of the people on Teen Mom, which debuts again on <laughs> MTV tonight, and uh, I might just happen to get on Tumblr to make fun of those nitwits. Again, did you see the naked pictures of Snooki, Don? I heard about it, but no, I did not see them. You're all right. Is she... Uh, oh, she's hideous. Pregnant? No. Okay. They're old, but she's got this hideous green nail polish on, and She's wearing this bathrobe, and she's just not sexy. No. No. All right. Uh, you can find all this information on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget to check out our other website or other podcast, not website, at footballnation.com, where you can find episode 10. We did an interview with Ian – how do you say his last name again? Rappaport. Rappaport. Yeah, yeah, Ian Rappaport. So check that out at footballnation.com. All right, last piece of business today, pick four. I did awful last week, went 0-4. Uh, second on four in a month for me, which is ruining what was a great start to the second season. My record now is 49 and 44. I had the Thunder, or I had the Spurs over the Thunder in game six. Thought the Spurs would show some life. They didn't. 107.99 for the Thunder. Also had the Kings sweeping the Devils. That didn't work out for me. Uh, Devils won game four, three to one. I had, uh, 
Williams and the Angels, my pitcher, the Mariners won that game 8-6. to six. Williams left the game with 6-6, six to six, but the Mariners ended up winning. And I thought Gagne would get the game-winning Stanley Cup goal. We kind of said that it would be in game four, but as the week went on, I figured, you know what, if we can pick the game-winning the game winning goal, I'm going to give it to us. But Gagne didn't get it. Jeff Carter did, and that was Don's only loss. He had Dustin Brown, who was originally credited with the Stanley Cup game-winning goal, but it was changed to Jeff Carter on a tip that Don said that the puck might not have went in if Carter didn't. Tip it, but Don went 3-1. and one. He improved his mark to 44-51. and 51. He had the Thunder over the Spurs, 107-91. Jake Peavy and the Red, White Sox over the Blue Jays, 4-3. And the Heat over the Celtics in Game 6, 98-79. Don. All right, our Game of the Week this week is obviously one from the NBA Finals. We're going to go with Game 2 since Game 1 is tonight. Look, we're making that, that, uh, Game 2 is Thursday night, uh, the 14th, at 9 o'clock on ABC. I said it earlier that if we made this pick after game one i would just pick whoever lost game one i i think this is going to be a pretty even series since i can't make the pick that way i'm going to take the heat wow. uh maybe i know i've been riding oklahoma city so that just means i'm gonna i just jinxed myself probably but i'm gonna assume oklahoma city wins game one i guess and then apply that logic and say the heat win game two i like oklahoma city a lot i just feel like this this looks like lebron's year you know what i went exactly the way you did my thought process was Thunder are going to win game one at home. The Heat aren't going to lose game two because I think it's going to be a long series. So that's why I'm going to pick the Heat as well. Kind of piggybacked on your logic. We'll see what happens. All right, I'm going to skip ahead to my host choice because really I could either pick like an arbitrary baseball game for this or I could pick another one of the finals games. I'm going to pick game three. And kind of similar logic, I think the Heat don't lose their first game at home. So I'm going to take the Heat in actually both of my games. That Game 3 is Sunday at 8 o'clock on ABC. I'm going to pick a game in the European Soccer Championships. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Ireland was the one team in the tournament that looked like they're overmatched. Croatia gave them a spanking. Spain and Italy played to a 1-1 draw and are considered potential favorites in the tournament. So I'm going to take advantage of that, and I'm going to say Spain is going to beat up on Ireland as well. That game is uh, Thursday at 2.45 on ESPN. So, All right, now on to my winning pitcher this week. Hopefully that pitcher will be Matt Kane of the Giants, who's having a great season. He's 7-2, and 2.41 ERA, playing the lowly, lowly Astros this uh, Wednesday at 10.15 p.m. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I have Kane as well. Starting pitcher for the Astros is J.A. Happ, who's 4-6 and six with a 4.54 ERA. This should set up great for us, Don. We should both have a winning pitcher this week. Let's hope so. And with our last thing, uh, instead of a bold prediction this week, we're going to pick a foursome for the U.S. Open. Like we did for the Masters. Like we did for the Masters. One of our foursome wins, we win. One of them doesn't, we lose. Okay, so I am not the biggest golfing guy, so I'm going to let Vegas pick it for me. I took the four guys with the best odds. That's Tiger Woods. Surprisingly, that must just be a... uh, Well, he won. Yeah, he did win, but so people love it. And, still. <laughs> and remember, the odds are kind of to get the money to right, split up. Right. So, so but that said, uh, he's won here before, so why not? Tiger Woods, he comes in at six to one odds. I took Lee Westwood at ten to one, Rory McIlroy at ten to one, and Luke Donald at twelve to one. All right, I got. Uh, I spread mine out a little bit. I didn't take the four. It's smart though. Uh, I'm going to take Westwood ten to one. McElroy ten to one, Adam Scott thirty three to one, and Bubba Watson thirty to one. So I spread my team out a little bit. 
Bubba's a cool guy. Yeah. McElroy won this last year. Uh, Westwood is a great golfer. And Scott's just kind of a long shot to throw in there. Sure. So those are my four guys. All right. That's it for today. It's been a great show. I uh, hope you enjoy it. I want to thank SL Price. I want to thank Lee Jenkins. Thank Michael Woods. Don't forget about our other podcasts, www.footballnation.com, Ian Rappaport. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.